a series of events to some really intelligent, sharp people. But what tripped me out was the audiences, because usually I don't see developed audiences. I see so much investor-based audience. And it blew my mind, because I expected it humble. But man, I went to Maine, and I was like, wow, there's a real culture bubbling. And then I come to Michigan, and I've never even been to Michigan. And I'm so impressed. I'm serious. And I couldn't believe, it wasn't the quality that turned out, I mean the numbers, it was the quality of the people who turned out. And I got to see such an incredible group of people who are agriculturally minded and based, and I realized that their region nurtured that, and that your region flourishes in that reality. And you all have this desire to move forward in what you're doing, furthering that. So it's been really inspirational, man. I'm gonna go home and go like, Michigan was cool. So thank you so much for letting me do it. So you got a river of spiritual shit this weekend about stick together and do all that. So I don't have to cover that. Normally I have to throw that in because it's something that I think it's important people realize. So we can get into what we want to get into with me right now. It's like, what are we doing with the genetics? And so when, when you're looking at the, the market today, so much of the market is a reality that's false. And what you're seeing in terms of popularity is through larger individuals that can drive a popularity agenda. And what we do is we follow that and we chase the popular so we too can be popular. And the problem with that is that I, I use the Cannabis Cups of High Times as the example where when the Cannabis Cups came out and started to announce that this was the best pot in the world, was it? Did it really, really change the world in a positive manner? It, it didn't. It was, it was varietals that were put on stage by people who had the ability to market them. And then the public said, well my gosh, this competition says this is best. And so everybody runs to what's best and they discard what they had and they feel that they're um, not current if they maintain the genetic integrity of the wines they've worked. And what you do is you chase these trends and you chase them and eventually you realize that this is not necessarily better cannabis. It's just well-branded cannabis, well-marketed cannabis. And, and I think that what happens is that people get really confused about that and they don't understand that the long view of what we do is to develop genetic differentiation in our regions. So that what you have is you have the things that work best here that are unique to your region are what you produce. And that way you're not competing with me in Humboldt County. And I don't want to compete with you in Michigan. So if we're all running the same biscotti cut, we're all competing against each other and we're trying to say who grows the best biscotti. But the reality of it is, is that what you want to be able to create is stuff that only can be produced and purchased from you. And now what you have is, you have not just the Michigan market, but you have the U.S. market. And as you get older, you're going to realize it'll be a global market. And you have to see that. And I think that I had an experience when I was younger that let me understand cannabis differently than most people I met. And I had got in trouble when I was young. And I went in the military after I graduated high school because my neighborhood was about to all go to prison. And I just didn't want to spend the rest of my life in the joint. And most of my friends spent a lot of time in the joint. A bunch of them died. So my direction was the correct one. But when I went into service, I, I got into being a salvage diver. 
And what happened sometimes was they used to loan me out to other agencies because I was young and I was, I was good in the water. So I would go and work with the DEA and the DOJ on drug interdiction and they would drop me out of helicopters on big freighters filled with drugs and I would dive the boat to see where the penetrations were. So I'm tripping out because I was a career, career weed dealer who goes into the military and becomes like a soldier in the drug war in, you know, 86. And I got dropped on 120 tons of weed from Thailand. And it was good, it's like I knew weed. And, and I was looking at 120 tons and, and, and that, that was worth, you know, four or five grand a pound at the time. And I sat there and looked at the pile and I realized, wow, we smoke a lot of pot. <laughs> I just couldn't believe how much weed I was looking at. It was, it was, it was massive. It was a huge ocean-going barge. They were towing behind ocean-going tugs. It was so big, there was no hiding this shit. The whole boat was nothing but bales of dope. And it instantly made me realize that the global market is so much bigger than we understand that none of us were ever competitors. And so when I got into cannabis in the way I did, I always shared my thoughts and I shared my genetic material because I realized that none of the stuff was so unbelievably proprietary because really there was people producing 120 tons and spitting it out in boats. And so it let me know that our, our view of it had been very myopic, very small. And because of that, we go into our industries with that little view of, you know, I got my little thing I produce here and, and if my neighbor gets a hold of my cut or gets a hold of my idea, my business is gonna fail. And what you end up doing is creating a, a tremendous number of individuals. And, and that may have been really effective for us in the prior uh, unregulated markets, but it, it's gonna kick the shit out of you in the future because the only way you're gonna be able to function and operate is really in these, these geographical agricultural zones. You have to see that the bigger picture is gonna open up quickly and that products are gonna be moved much more freely than before. And as it goes into the federal zone, there'll be people from Germany who wanna order weed from Michigan. And if you can, and, and they're not gonna wanna order Girl Scout cookie from Michigan. They might wanna order, you wove Girl Scout cookie into your line because you wanted better morphology. You wanted better, you know, appearance to you or better resistance or you like the cookie dough flavor. But you're not running a Girl Scout cookie clone. You're actually using it to weave into the genetics that you have here in your region. So that what you have is something that they can't get it anyplace else and you're producing it at a level that lets your region influence it in the way it should. And what, what happens is people kind of start to say, okay, let's do that, but then everybody wants to produce exactly the same thing. So people decide they want to produce different things. But the thing is they don't know how to quantify what's different. And so when you, when you want to quantify what's different with cannabis, it, it's, it's, everyone has a, an opinion on it, and it, it makes it tough. But what I did a long time ago was I wanted to create a competition that allowed me to have lab metrics be the sifting process. Because I used to judge the Emerald Cup, and so you judge an 1100, right? Regular people can't really do that. They just can't. I mean, the quantity of smoking you have to do in the course of a month to burn a thousand samples is frightening. 
And it's like a job, like it's a straight job. And I don't do it to smoke the weed. I do it to smoke the weed to see what the region produced throughout the course of a year. So every year I get to play with the cup. It lets me see California's harvest on a bigger picture than normal. I get to see the whole state. And I get to note in my notebook production methodologies that I think shine because I start to identify input similarities. And it lets me start to see trends and who makes, who's doing the best work. So it gives you this incredible amount of information, but for an average judge to come in and judge cannabis, it's impossible to judge that many. So I, I figured 16 was good for six hours. I figured if you could, because the bottom line is you don't got to smoke the whole joint. You can take a puff and say, I don't like it. And that's, you don't have to continue that one. But when you use numerics, it really changes the reality because numbers don't mean anything. They mean everything on extraction in terms of efficiency of extraction. And they mean everything at dispensary sales because people perceive that numbers dictate efficacy. That if it has a higher number, you then get a better effect for a cheaper price. And most people are money driven. And that's not a, a, a derogatory statement. It's just that not everybody has a tremendous wad of cash in their pocket everywhere they walk. So when you can go get a, a steak for $7 less that's comparable, you probably do. Cannabis is the same thing. So there's no, there's, there's no uh, um, reality to the, the numerics, but it is perception because the labs, when they came out, didn't come with education to the public. So the laboratory services come out and we didn't use them correctly. We, we didn't use them as a, as, a, as a look into the cultivar, the chemovar, the chemotype. We looked at it as this is what it is. And so the problem is that when you're trying to judge really good grass and it has killer numbers, it doesn't mean you're gonna buy it twice after you smoke it. And so I, I knew that that was the truth. And so how can I create a cup that uses lab metrics when I'm someone who's telling people lab metrics don't matter? So I said, if I break cannabis up into categories of how I view the distinctions, it'll let me have those categories compete against each other separately. And so in my mind, I realized that cannabis broke up into these four major divisions. And this was just purely intuition. This is just me moving a lot of weed and growing a lot of weed and touching a lot of weed over the course of my whole life. And I sat down in my house and I said, I'm gonna create this competition, which was the first light that competition in the country. And it was the first lab competition in the country where the samples were actually tested for all, whatever was current at the time, the hardest standards. We used Colorado initially, then I used Oregon, because California didn't have standards. So I used these incredibly stringent standards of cleanliness so that the growers would be able to have an opportunity to play the game in real time before they got to the game. So I made the testing hard as a sifting process. And then I made the categories up here, which was the fuel in the earth, fruit and floral, so that I could take the way I saw cannabis and have those divisions compete against each other and then the top four of each one would then go head to head. And what it did is it allowed me to take earths, which you know typically come in say around 13, 14, compete against fuels that are coming in at 32. And it allowed fruits that are 15, 16 go against florals that are 26 to 28. And so it allowed me to use this perception of cannabis to, to kind of straighten out the numeric issue so I could get 16. And is it still perfect? No, because ultimately throw the, throw the lab results out and just smoke the shit. And then you really know the truth of it as an experience. 
but we have to have some means of necking down the population, and my competition was only exceeded by the Emerald Cup. So I'm not big like the Emerald Cup in terms of scope of attendees, but I have the second largest collection of cultivators that competed with me over those five years of any cup in the U.S. except the Tim Blake's Emerald Cup. So bigger than any High Times Cup, bigger than any Dope Cup. So my, my concept worked, and what it did is it let the growers go, hey, that makes sense. I'm willing to, I'm willing to enter some weed and spend the money to enter your cup. And what happened was that philosophy of, of making it simple and using those categories, I got challenged by a group of scientists from UCLA. And they said to me, they came to visit me and said, what's your basis of this proof? And I just said, I don't have one. I said, it's only intuition. So if you want to challenge it scientifically, you're welcome. And then just tell me how it turned out. Because I own the cup and the people are agreeing that it works. And so I don't really need to worry about it. But you can, you can definitely challenge it. And what I'll do is I'll give you all the lab results so that you can look at them as data points. So what they were able to receive was the largest collection of lab reports at one time ever handed over to a scientific group. And what it did is it allowed them to take a look at it using their state-of-the-art graphing. They were able to take my material and put it into these incredible visual graphs that let them see relationships. And they came back to me and they said, man, you were, that was the most accurate breakdown we've ever seen in cannabis. And so I realized I hit on something pretty clearly. Now this group, that was Dr. Abrams, John Abrams from UCLA, he forms a company called Fireflower Technologies that they're gonna do something called the, the, the I think it's called the Canamark. And what it is, is it's utilizing the information that I laid out. It helps people understand that by looking at terpene relationships, you can get a very clear, distinct picture of how it's gonna affect you. So what we know is that turf profiles basically steer the car and your chemotyping in terms of uh, uh, cannabinoids are as gas pedal and brake. So I can accentuate or slow down a direction, but the direction is typically dictated by the terpene profile. So the whole point of it was that we wanted to be able to make it easy for users to understand how to purchase cannabis. I realized from having dispensary operations for the last 11 years that I was in it. So I'm somebody, and I'm somebody who likes to be active in what he does so that I can kind of understand the little, the issues so that you're not looking at it from this, this flying in the air perspective, but you're on the ground with it. And the reality is most people that come in really aren't educated in consuming cannabis. And they don't know. And they, they don't want to have to go home and take a special course to learn how to smoke weed. What they want to be able to do is have it simple and have it pretty accurate. And I wanted to be able to utilize a system that said, listen, if you want something that's aggressive and high, we send you into fuel zones. I don't care if it's a 14% underdog or a 32% OG chem from Ganja Rebel. It's going to still be a, a similar direction, aggressive. Then if you want to be relaxed, I can put you into earth tones. And we would usually call that stuff like Bob's Broadleafs, earthy coffees. Those have a relaxing effect, traditionally. When you swing over to fruit, that's uplifting. That's something that opens you up because those terp profiles are bright. They're also the most addictive. So any of these citrus terpenes are highly addictive, and that's why when you look at concentrates, you see the, the, the change. Cultivars were um, pretty skewed one direction, but when concentrate came out, all of a sudden the fruits became popular again. 
people be just loving it. Because once I turn the throttle up on the fruit with the, the extraction process, not only do I get a lot higher uh, cannabinoids to play with, but I'm turning up an extremely addictive substance, which is these citrus terps. And the tobacco companies figured this one out. So I, when I was researching tobacco and I'm trying to understand how they operate, that's what I realized is certain terpene groups are highly addictive. I couldn't find the ones that aren't. That was a funny thing. I could find all the addictive terps published, but I couldn't find any one that counterfected addiction. So that's it. it's interesting. But the point is, fruit is highly addictive, but in, in, in smokable form in flour, because it's not so jammed up, it's not. And it just allows you to have a, a nice, pleasant uprise. And then stuff that's floral, we would call contemplative. And so floral would be something like Blue Dream. And Blue Dream gets a, a bad rap a lot of times, but it's the number one seller in places like Seattle and San Francisco. People that have tremendous amounts of money can buy whatever they want, and they still buy Blue Dream. And it's because Blue Dream, these, these, these floral categories work with, they have enough of a mental lucidity to allow you to do a technical job, but they have enough of a bottom end to give you pain relief so that while you're sitting over, hunched over a computer for 11 hours a day, you're not miserable. And so we use those examples of those categories. And those categories can be substantiated through terpene ratios in market. Uh, a Swiss group came out and a Swiss scientist said, look, we discovered cannabis breaks up into four categories. And it was basically um, limonene, myrcene, carophylline, and terpenaline. And so if you take a look at those varieties, those four categories, you can kind of see where these components would match. The thing with terp profiles is that they're misleading because just because you have a major terp, it doesn't mean that the variety is going to only go that direction because the miners influence it so much. And even when you do varietals where you're messing around with inputs and you're seeing changes in terp profiles, a lot of times the base varietal doesn't change dramatically. And so the complexity of the, of the, of the organism itself is greater than these little pieces. But you can make some really good generalizations that are pretty accurate most of the time. So the point of this is that you utilize this information. And oh, the part I wanted to throw on was is this guy named uh, Dr. Jeff Tarrant, T-A-R-R-A-N-T. So Tarrant is a psychologist. And he's doing brainwave patterns on people who smoke weed. So he lays out his own testing system. He gets people to smoke. He measures your brain waves. He sees every person that's smoking, and he has different varieties, all the exact same brain waves. And so he says cannabis doesn't change people, all the varieties are the same. Dr. Abrams gets a hold of Tarant and says, hey, you're clustering everything in the wrong category. You're giving everybody fuel-based varietals. If you swing it over to a fruit or a floral way on the other spectrum, let's see what happens. And the brain waves moved across that screen so clearly that it, it instantly established a reality that you need to have in what you're doing because the problem with us is, as a culture is that we've been diminished for so long that no one wants to listen to us. And so what you have to do is you've got to create information that's scientifically accurate so that they can't, they can't break you down. And then you make it simple so that the people who you want to really affect, which is your consumer, can utilize it. And so uh, Dr. John Abrams from, the, from Fireflower Technologies, 
That's the one that's doing the marking off the work I did. And he's creating a, a wonderful system to make it simple. And I have nothing to do with these guys, so this isn't a business pitch. This is just work that I did, that, that I came up with, that other people saw, validated, and used to build their own direction. But Tarant's work quantifies this clearly, where you can see the brain waves move clearly from the clusters. So now what you have is you have a proof. And that proof allows you to be able to tell the customers, this is the direction we're going to go. What you need to understand as cultivators is that those directions allow you to realize that people don't really give a shit what OG they're smoking, as long as it's a good one. And so if you want a fuel, find a good fuel that works for you both as the chemovar, which is your chemical composition, and your cultivar, which is the chassis. And when you get the chemovar and the cultivar together, what you have is success as a farmer and a, and a, and a, and a seller. And so you start to build your differentiation in your libraries through these four basic categories because with the categories and they touch each other, that's where all the fringe varietals come from. Everything fits within these categories. And it seems broad, but it, it's pretty simple. If cannabis derives fundamentally from a single source or a, a very few sources, then really how much base can there be? So if we go back up into it, we take a look and we can say, I got you. I need to be able to catch these four major markets. And so the four major markets move. And you're gonna find they move regionally and they move with uh, cultural shifts. Good song comes out and people are wanting that fruity fruity and then someone says, you know, if I got the gassy gassy. And you, you just have to understand the shifts. And what it does is it allows you to build libraries that aren't redundant. Most people I talk to when I, when I look at what they have for stock, I was asking like, why'd you collect it? And they, they tell me, oh, well, you know, this is this and this is that. And they ask me, well, you know, why'd you collect your stock? And I said, because all my stock makes money. All my stock is proven to sell to people. And they go, well, I'm not about the money. And I said, but money is an indicator of acceptance. And so what I'm saying is that these varietals, for some reason, absolutely attracted people and they wanted to buy them over and over again. So that means that you're holding material in your hand that was very trendy at a time. It just means it has the base materials. I take a look at those and I figure where they classify so that I don't start to weigh my library of 20 plants where 17 of them are fuel. I can say, okay, let's diversify within the library. And then where is your desires most? Typically, you're gonna have a few more there. So I like, I like earthy coffees and stuff, so I might have a few more earth than I have fruit. But I always have quality fruit, quality floral, quality gas, quality earth. And then as the markets change, you can then increase or decrease the quantity of the varietals you're producing in those categories. You need to make sure you have enough of the categories. People are like, I'm gonna produce 22 varieties at my farm, and I'm like, you're insane. In California, you gotta pay for these individual batch tests, so the more you start to differentiate in terms of varietals on a farm, the more it costs you to do so. So you get punished for that. So you wanna minimize the amount of choices, but you wanna make sure that you're covering the spectrum of desirability. So the spectrum of desirability is relatively simple. And what you have to do in your condition generally is realize who's buying your product. So where are you selling it? Does your product end up in blue collar neighborhoods? Is your product 
sold to the people in tech areas? Who's buying it? Because that's going to determine what product they want to buy. And when you realize where your end customer is, then you know how to accentuate what you're producing in those in ratios. So I have four, four clusters I want to work with, but I might go 75% gas because that's where it's hot. And I, but I have a percentage point of the ones below it because what it does is it allows you to reach these other markets and give them product from you that lets them then make a decision saying, hey, that was some good product. And then they do word of mouth. They then introduce their friends that they smoke to your product. And the product says, well, that was some good fruit. Do they grow other things? And now you have interest. And then people will start to realize, well, oh, they grow some good gas too, man. Let's go get some gas from that farm. And the next thing you know, what you're doing is you're grabbing market share. And you, you have to make sure you have some form of product to enter these different markets so that you're not laid out completely within one zone because if there's any overproduction or a swing in trend or any change, well then you're trapped. So you, you can't really go 25, 25, 25, 25 because there's always going to be a hot market. But your job as a cultivator is to really understand who's purchasing your product, what's the direction they're going, and, and how do you create the library that you need within those clusters that work. And what you're going to find is that so much of the stuff that was hot in the past is still hot today because all we're doing is recirculating. So North America has probably the best collection of genetics in the world by far. And when I look at other countries and they're asking me for genetic consultation, I trip out that nothing is indigenous anymore. All the native varietals from these countries that we mined our stock from are using our stock now because the, the commercialization of cannabis drove an awareness of magazine pot and nobody wanted any of the, uh, the, the, the land varietals. The magazines drove morphological choices where we suddenly started to see indoor, I remember when indoor couldn't sell. I tell this to people, I said, I don't want to hear this shit that outdoor doesn't sell. I remember when indoor couldn't sell because people didn't go, what, what's that little tiny bag? That's not, that's not pot. I remember when Perp couldn't sell. Who wants that dark weed? And it was because it was a new thing. And so the pendulum swings. It never stays pinned to one direction. And so the, ma the magazines push morphological imagery based off of indoor technology. And it was because you could constantly sell people indoor equipment and indoor fertilizers. But outdoors, basically, I can't really sell you the sun. And once you build your soil, you're not really putting a lot of inputs into it. And so that wasn't marketable. So if you go back and look at the evolution of indoor cultivation, it was driven through magazines, and you look at the picture, flip the page, there's the ad. Well, that convinced everyone that this was the right route. And so all these incredible varieties around the world got wiped out, and we're holding a lot of these, these gene pools here. We have better grass. And we actually have a phenomenal climate across the United States to cover an unbelievable assortment. And once you kind of understand this, you go, whoa, we're really a global producer. So people are saying they're going to want you know, cheap pot from Colombia. Yeah, in the mid-market. So we're not the ones that have to be afraid of Colombian wheat. The bigger companies sure the hell do. 
if you're a concentrate guy and you're, punching, you're pumping up biomass, you better be afraid because they're gonna come at you aggressively hard, but they're not gonna be able to produce what we want and they're not gonna grow long cycle killer sativas like we fantasize about because they're basically gone. And so only in little tiny pockets does the microcraft exist in those countries still. So in, in your situation, my situation, you know, East Coast craft situation, it's to take a look and realize what do you have that's been run in your area that's unique that isn't just an Instagram cut? Because Instagram pot looks really nice, but you don't want to smoke it twice. But most people are really running their shit off Instagram. And they're using social media as this incredible marketing tool because there's an anonymity to it. And so for everybody in the black market, everybody that was in um, a little more, I got to kind of hide, but I can get online with a, with a call name, you know, Giant Buds, and people can see my stuff and then I can do business. And the, the problem is, is that there's no connection to the people in that. There's no, there's no reality. And the people that you're gonna sell cannabis to in the future might not necessarily wanna go through 42 hours of Instagram pictures to find your farm. And so you're gonna have to work off of different marketing. And I think that that's where the regional aspect has to come in and, and craft people can actually work together in that capacity because what you can do is you can start to take a look at your region and figure out where are the pockets of the cultivators, what do we grow best in these pockets, in the categories that we can break up, how do we get differentiation, and who does the best job within these, and then under, a, under an umbrella of regional production, uh, like the Dragonfly Earth Medicine it, it, production standards you start to have an ability to create a marketable product that doesn't step on each other's toes. Because you're all gonna grow the same shit. Whatever's hot, everybody's growing it. And then the problem is now it's not hot. And a lot of times people get into hot strains because they see them, especially where I am, I, I see this all the time, they get analytics. And they say, well, the analytics say that this is the hottest strain in the market. And that's why we should grow it. And I tell them, you're out of your mind. And they go, but the data says this. And I said, I know, but interpreting data is a science just like plotting data. And the interpretation of data says that some companies are so big that they can stuff the shelves of stores with the things they had to grow. It doesn't mean that the people wanted to buy them. It's just that's the only choice that people had. And so when you give people choice, all of a sudden you find a lot of this inferior Instagram weed is no longer valuable. And so you have to be really cognizant of it. And you have to be able to also use that Instagram branding to help you to get into certain markets depending on, on who you're working with. And if you're working with trendies, you're, you're working with people that are, that are caught up in, in, in social trends quickly, then you have to have some stuff that lays in into it. But that doesn't give you your global differentiation. That gives you short-term sales. So as you're trying to stay alive, you have to, as I keep saying, you have to build your regional base. You have to start to go through all your genetic collections. Someone yesterday said, how do, I'm, in, I'm in Ohio, how do I get old weed? And I'm like, well, you go to old people because they're the ones that have it. And they had varietals that are the building blocks of today, but they're different enough that allow you to be able to take that material and weave it into something that you want now and have that old material be formed to build lines that you can work with as you go forward. So that you start to have the ability to create stuff that is absolutely yours. If you look up the Open Cannabis Project, 
So write that one down. This is important because you need to know how to protect yourself. So the Open Cannabis Project is run by uh, Beth Schechter. And what it is is it's, it's about open source genetics, but it's also about how you protect your genetics. And so she should have on that site listed, she put them up at the last event, some of the breeder uh, rights and contracts. And Strainley's doing one, and Jerry Whiting's doing one. And there, there are these formats of what are the agreements that you have in utilizing genetics? And then how do we start to work to build lines that we can actually patent and trademark and protect for a region so that you're not actually just growing someone else's stock and having to give them a portion of the profit because your profits are not going to be devastatingly high until down the road when really differentiation occurs. So you're going to go through some lean times. And while you're going through this, you want to make sure that you're developing the ability to hold the things that you're working on. If you build stuff that fits, you have these beautiful cherry groves, you have an ability that has, you have an agricultural power here for a long time, you tap into that mystique. And you start to develop varietals that work with the high humidity in August. They're able to benefit from your, your soil situation so they shine, they finish early enough so that you can actually complete the cycle. When you get stuff that's stabilized, that works like that, that's powerful. That's, that is your brand. That is the variety you use. And if you look at, if you look at wine, the, the, the inputs from the direction, the location, they can use similar grapes. And some regions only allow you to use specific grapes. So if you're in Champagne, you only have four grape choices. So the whole region only works off of four grapes. And then one production methodology. So they all agreed that if we all use the same fundamental production methodology and we use four grapes, then any farmer in the entire Champagne region can be part of the business. And the house defines the money there. So whoever's the, the person that takes the grape, crushes it, holds it, ferments it, moves it, they're the, they're the ones that add the value. The farmers can then only have to be farmers, which is their real desire. They don't necessarily want to go through all that other crap, but they're still valuable. They're not, it's not, they're not selling bushels of corn. They're selling something very, very specific. And that's the point with the regional development of what you're doing, is that you're creating clusters that have historically been accurate. And in those, you're developing lines that work that allow you to be able to have things that are patentable, things that are protected, things that allow you true differentiation. And in that differentiation, now what you have is an ability to compete globally because you'll create cannabis that I'll be able to order online. I'll be able to hop online and find out where is it sold. And, and you will find that some of these regions will rival California easily and they choose the right varietal. But if you try to grow what I grow, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you, man, I got a good climate. And so it, it won't work. <laughs> So you have to come at me and utilize your climate to produce things that I can't, things that, varieties that have other characteristics, things that are gonna have um, other the little nuances that are, that are subtle. And those things allow you to have this, but you gotta go make sure you start to figure out how do you protect what you're doing? How do you work together collaboratively so that you have people who are willing to use your work? You, if you're doing seed work, you have to have larger populations typically to do the work. You're going to find that you're going to be coming against a lot of people who are going against scientific breeding projects. And that, that's not a bad thing. It just means it's very efficient. 
and it's about 65 grand to do one right now. So 65 grand will do you a scientific breeding project where you can put a large population of seed and the companies will come take analysis throughout the course of the plant's life and start to uh, locate markers on resistance. So pretty soon, that's the first marker they're going for is resistance on, on fungal problems. So once they start wiping that issue out, all of a sudden they're able to select cultivar lines that you can't use because you, you didn't select it. So it's hard for each individual to throw $65,000. So what I recommend is you get together in regional clusters because your needs will be similar. If they're on top of the mountain and you're in a valley, don't combine resources because you're gonna have two different needs radically different cultivars are going to have to be used in those locations. But if you're in similar geography and similar need, then you can start to work and develop these lines. If you have old material that you are trying to mine that's pathogenically screwed up, you can, for, for seven to ten grand, you can do a full tissue scrub. And all you're doing is you're, you're going into the material and you're outgrowing the pathogenic issue and then you're propagating it, that's called meristem prop, and then you go into nodal prop to replicate it. Well, if, if 10 of you get together to do it, then it only costs you 700 bucks. And the difference between a tissue culture plant and any other clone that had any kind of contamination is so dramatic, it blows your mind when you see it. I'm scrubbing all this old stock that I thought I understood, and I really realized I didn't understand it. And there's this woman named Eleanor Kuntz, and she's, uh, she's brilliant, she's a brilliant woman. I'm not sure what her degree is in, but man, she's sharp as a razor. She's, she's doing the arboreum. And what the arboreums are is you'll have one here. Those are the books where you press the plants to show really what is the shape of the plant for marking it. So we can mark it genomically, and we can mark it morphologically through visual. These markings help standardize what is yours and what is not, and what comes from here and what doesn't. And what we found was that so much of the plant material had incorrect morphological characteristics because it was carrying the virus or it was carrying fungal issues. And so when you tissue scrub it, all of a sudden you see leaf morphology change. You see branching morphology change. You see changes that you just didn't expect and you're like, wow, I've been looking at an inhibited plant for a long time and just didn't know it. It only costs, it's under 200 bucks to do an analysis to find out what's in your plant. So any of these labs that are agricultural labs, find one local that does ag testing for any product, send them cannabis sample. That doesn't make a difference. They're just gonna identify, is a fusarium present? Is there a virus present? That's all you care about. If there's nothing present, you do not need to do any kind of meristem scrubbing. So if the plant has no issues, you don't need to scrub it. Sometimes I see like 60% of the samples come through that need to be scrubbed. So it got to the point that there's so much material in California that's jammed up that the labs just basically scrub it from the onset. So everything comes in, gets meristem, then it gets nodal. But if you're a you know, cultivator and you're trying to keep your budget tight, the 200 bucks you can find out, do I need to scrub it? And if you do need to scrub it, then between seven to 10 grand, you can do a meristem scrub. And from that point, what you have is something that'll easily give you back that amount of money in revenue. Because if I'm losing, if I'm losing my production and I'm losing terpene levels and I'm losing cannabinoid levels and I'm losing the ability for the plant to photosynthesize correctly, if I'm having uptake issues, that means I'm forming more chloroplasts in my leaves because the plant doesn't believe that it's producing enough sugar because it's not receiving enough sugar. So it's creating a denser cellular level in the leaf. 
which then creates more problems because I have more sugar available at the leaf for pathogens to come eat. So you create this like vicious circle all based off of the fact that the plant's struggling. And these, these methodologies in, in how we can work with genetics now is incredible. You just have to team up or you can't afford it. And so at, at 10 grand a scrub, that's a lot for an individual, but for a group, it's not. So you got a question, right? Yeah, you can, you can test for anything you want. Uh, the, the, the question was, can you test the systemic pesticides? There's nothing you can't test for, but you don't, need, you don't, you don't typically need to meristem scrub pesticide out. That's going to drop over time. So it's, it's rare that you hold, epigenetically the plant has been affected. And what you have to do with plants that have been put through chemical ag, chemical um, controllers, is to put them into organic systems and let them kind of refresh. And they're going to scrub the tissue just like you scrub the tissue. And so you can, you can take old material that has no viral or fungal issues like Fusarium, because those things you've got to get rid of. And then you can put them into, I use earthbox systems because they're just very slow. Earthbox systems, once they light up and move, they're great. But when you put the plant into an earthbox system for indoor scrubbing, it's, I like to do sunlight on the plants because it gives them the best information. But in real life, you're not always having killer sunlight in the middle of winter. So you're going to have to use indoor methodologies at times. And the earth boxes are pretty nice because the plant has a, a different form of uptake. And it slows the plant down enough when you do the transplant that you start to see the plant change and start to shed tissue. And so when we put older plants in it, I watch them dump all the old leaf and I watch new meristematic tissue come up from those cuttings. I can send that in and I have cleanliness. But it's for viral contamination, and we see a lot of viruses now. You're seeing hemp viruses come into cannabis. And so we saw this years ago, they just couldn't identify it. And the viruses in some of these cases create these calcium chloride crystals that form in the vascular bundles. That's not what the virus does. That's the plant responding to the virus. And the response is to slow the movement of it through its bundles, so it occludes them. And what happens is you have the same problem that you do with fusarium, where you're, you're not having uptake, and you're not having flow down, and so you end up having root die off, you end up having no lignification, your, your branches aren't solidifying, you're having uh, uh, just an overall lack of quality. If you have any of that existing in your farm, you're gonna get knocked out because the people that are coming into cannabis, the theory is they don't know what they're doing. But typically they can learn. So that's the problem, is that when they learn how to do what they're supposed to do, they're gonna know just what to do. And they may fumble with their $80 million facility for a little while, but they'll figure it out. It's like a really nice car. Nobody can drive it until you get somebody who can drive it. And then they drive it. And now everybody else is looking slow. And, and that's what's gonna happen here, is you, these technologies I'm talking about and what we're doing, they're ones that you have to be aware of and you have to be aware of them so you know how to use them yourself. And so I have a nursery facility that's only fed for tissue culture. What we, what we found was, for all the years that I was in the business, I was the first person to have a vertical nursery in the country. The, nur the nursery model of coming into a store and buying plants directly from the manufacturer was me. It had never been done in California, and never been done in the rest of the U.S. So I come up with this idea because I had run plants. But what we figured out was, let's figure out if we pull all the chems out of the controls, 
and let's see what happens. And to do it in public is tough because you always look stupid when you make mistakes in public. So trust me, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to be in public in a minute doing it. It's all right. You're going to make them. And what you're going to do is you're going to solve the riddle. And so what we figured out was that with the, the, the fact of the level of testing that was going to occur, that it was cheaper to use science than it was to try to play the game and fail. And so what I realized is if other industries use TC as a methodology, then we should use it also. And it, you don't have to use it for your own home nursery, but if you move in large plant stock and sit consistently, you are liable to litigation. And so if you suddenly have viral contamination that you can't see, pathogenic movement that you didn't know, you can scout the plants all day, but you're not scouting inside the cell. And you sell those plants and there's a failure. The people who fail will have them tested and they will blame you for the failure. And you have a lawsuit on your hands and there's a bunch of nurseries in California getting the shit kicked out of them right now because of that. Because it's too much testing with not enough of the chemical controls that the world was built on. So the expectation of perfection is not really real. That you really do have bugs on your plants once in a while. You do have some failures in the garden. That's normal ag. It happens. Pests do move into your world. And like Suzanne's always saying, you have to scout aggressively and have to look. But with some of these in, in, internal things, you can't see them. So realize that these tools that you're using, they're crucial. If you're in nursery and you're moving stock, make sure that you're using lab testing to determine are you clean. If you're propagating and you have material that you would really like to strike really quick, meaning cleaned plants absolutely propagate nicely. They grow better. They're more uniform. All of these things are the tools that you're going to have to go against in competition. And you don't have to compete against these people directly because they have a different market than you. They want to be in these mid-markets. And what people don't realize is that a lot of these major companies are buying up craft farms right now. And they're not buying them so they can convert them into salt factories. It's the opposite. They're buying them so they can have differentiation in the market themselves. They can have their mega line, and then they can have their craft line. And when they come into your neighborhood and do that, it's actually not a bad thing because they're going to do branding for you. They moved into your neighborhood for a reason. And they believe that you have a market value and that you have production value. But the problem is they're going to be taking properties from your friends who can't compete. So you're going to see a, a loss of people around you which is going to kind of freak you out. You're going to be surprised. Look around the room and you're going to be like, well, how many are you going to be left? Like when I went to dive school, there was this many people that walked in the building. And when I graduated, there was this many people. It was just a line. Everybody else got culled out through the course of the training. And so I have this real clear picture of what it looks like to cull humans out of a group. And you have to be able to make sure that you're able to understand where the value is in what you do and how your production methodologies highlight the, the plant that you have. If, if you were farmers and you're growing tomatoes, it'd be the same situation. You have to have a unique tomato that grew out of your area that could only be found here, that was, that was prioritized, and all of you combine the branding. So you work in those genetic clusters. You start to develop directions within those clusters. You can now advertise as a collective region. I learned a lesson about products from a liquor distributor, and he was doing $7 billion a year in liquor sales. 
And he said, there's no brands in cannabis. And I said, and, and what do you mean by that? And he said, well, in liquor, if you're a brand, you could be in 45,000 stores at the same time. And if you're a distributor, you can refill all 45,000 stores within 24 hours. And so I laughed and I said, you're right, there's no brands in cannabis. But regional brands really are the future because now you have enough product to be able to create enough to get you moving at least six months through the year after harvest. And then after that harvest of the outdoor, then that's where the concentrate comes in because you lose quality of your flower. What you have to work with as you're going through this, this maze to get to success is that within the clusters, you have to be able to realize that some of the things you're developing aren't ready for consumption yet because they don't have the, the simplicity of trimming, they don't have the holdability in the way it's packaged. If you don't have a vertical array where you harvest it, you're the one who processes it, your team packages it, it moves it quickly, then you have to have things that are really, really heavy sesquiterpene bonded varietals. Because if these, these ultra-aromatic monos, if the distributor holds it in an 80 degree room for a while, you're done. And as a store owner, I see so much herb come in from people I know. That's the difference is that I actually know a lot of the farms we buy from. And I know what the weed looked like when I was at the farm. And I know what the weed looked like when I was smoking it at his house. But when I see it at the store, I'm in horror because the supply chain really messed it up. It's like pre-roll market. If you're in the pre-roll market and you're trying to do premium pre-rolls, be careful because if that premium, as soon as you grind it, you're oxidizing it. And as soon as you oxidize it and you lose that incredibly aromatic front end, you're losing like the alcohols, the esters and the theols, you're losing the monos, you have a product that's worthless. It's, it's, it's just not in the nose. And we want to shift into heavier bonded terps if you go in that direction. What do you got? So, uh, do you think there's sesquiterpene varieties in all four categories then? In the fueled earth, the fruit, and the floral, do we find sesquiterpene? Yes, in any one of those categories, because what you would do is you would say, let's go into the floral, and you sit down with a group of you, and you, you burn it and say, it lost its flavor two puffs into the joint. Was it so kick-ass during those two puffs that it would make me want to smoke it twice? And you just gotta be honest, and a lot of times you have to have other people judge your product. And I always bring people in, when I did the competition for the tarp, I brought in, you know, uh, I think there was like, there's, a, there's, there's an X amount of judges, but I bring in about 75% of regular people. And you spin this big ball at the event, and we whisk you away to some killer, killer spot. And, and competitors tripped out and said, they're not qualified, and I said, you mean they're not qualified to tell you they don't like you eat? They're most definitely qualified to tell you that because everyone's buying it. And so... I was one of those unqualified judges. Exactly. But, but you are qualified, though, because you, you're a cannabis aficionado and appreciation. So your, your qualifications are real. So you're like a, an outlier on that one where you're not industry as a producer, but you're most definitely knowledgeable. I like people that really just like to smoke a little bit but don't have a lot of knowledge. Because then what I do is I protect them from their opinion being shared so they don't have to quantify why. They can just tell me I like it or I don't. I don't make them rate it. I don't make them rank it. I don't make them grade it. I ask them, did you like it? Would you buy it twice? 
And that's as honest an answer as there is. And so I always bring in people who are not in the weed game because we're like, oh my God, it took you 73 weeks to finish this shit, it's miraculous. And someone else looks at it and said, it looks like, hey, I don't want to buy that crap. <laughs> and you're, you're devastated and you're, like, you're trying to explain to them why because the, the market's not ready for that. And when we start to have better supply chain management, when we start to have better control of the handling of the product, within those categories, you'll be able to start to find more refined and delicate profiles that we can then really hold. Things aren't meant for the market today because it makes you look bad. It really does. When people, I see people trying to shoehorn stuff all the time. I remember when sour was hot and everybody's trying to grow sour, and I'm like, bro, your yard isn't meant for it. If you can't take that shit off in November, it won't work. And they're like, no, no, it's what's hot. And I'm like, no, half-done pot is never hot. <laughs> and people just don't understand that you can't ride those waves. You can't ride those trends if they don't apply to you. And so you have to understand your position in time of where you're at. And you have to realize that as the knowledge increases, we'll see this radical change in numerics and how we perceive them. And we'll start to see an appreciation for a lot more material where you'll be able to start bringing in really way more balanced chemotypes. So you'll see the CBD revolutions on, but mostly it's because people were able to find a loophole in the system through hemp to get oral suspension CBD delivered. Well, the FDA just took that right out of the game. So you're not eating CBD anymore. It's, it's, it's already off the shelf in California. The FDA is busy. And so they're sweeping it, and they'll, they'll take oral suspension CBD and make it go through the cannabis regulations. It gives them duality of licensing, it gives them a lot higher taxes. The real money in hemp wasn't in any other product but oral suspension. So the most valuable product that you could make with hemp you know, previously has been removed from that range. So what it does, it allows you under cannabis licensing not to have to worry about this point number and say, oh, I'm gonna exceed my numbers. What it does, it lets you start finding balanced chemotypes again. And you're gonna be surprised at, at what you're gonna see come forward because so many of the new people are unable to function at the higher levels. And I don't believe the propaganda so much, but I definitely see a tremendous amount of people who aren't from the, the heavy consumption world toxified on heavy weed where they really are having emotional problems. They really are having anxiety issues. Because it's like having somebody who doesn't drink and you give them shots of moonshine. You know, you just, you don't introduce people like that. And these people don't have the same tolerances and they also have different desires of what they want from the experience. And so the categories in terms of how we perceive them don't change. The chemotypes within them in terms of cannabinoids do and the ratios do. And so if you just see these pictures and you're always unaware of the fact that nothing really leaves those categories because that is the categories when you look at it. If you take all the categories and you lay them out, we lay all the varieties we know, they lay along this line in a pattern that's mind bending. And so once I started to see it, I realized that we can use that tool and then we adjust as the trends change in terms of what we're producing. What do you got? I was wondering, so there's absolutely no exceptions to the, to the four categories. 
if you've never found anything that is an exception. And then I also just had a quick question because what you said about the uh, viruses and the scrubbing was really important. And can those things survive in our beds and our, our soil? You know what, um, let's see, what the, so the first question was, what did we phrase the first question? Oh, is there any exception? Um, from when, because when I laid it out, it was just perception. And if I, if I take any variety, I can touch those, any two edges together and I can give it you the base. Because it's a perception. So what, what the scientists do is they say, these terpenes lay this out. And depending on what cluster the scientists look at, it can be different terpene profiles, but it only seems to break up into four. And so that's the part that, that I caught was that the, the division and the bigger picture was right. Which group are you looking at? But it still breaks up in these simple groups. And so what it does, it just allows you a, a much easier picture and realize, and I got you, we want to go earth, but we want to go earth with cherry. We want to go fuel, but we want to go fuel with some fruit. We'd love to see uh, a floral mixed with the fruit so that we have a, a deeper introspective base with a more spark. So you can take any of the categories and touch them together and pull material out. But fundamentally, once you start to smell it, you'll be like, I got you, it's an earth with the fruit. Where's the dominance? And so with the competition, I allowed the grower to choose the dominance. And if they came in and asked me, I said, well, yeah, let's take a look at it. And I'd smell it and say, hey, that's more floral. That's more fruit. And people thought they were going to be clever and say, well, if I enter my varietal in an earth category and it's an OG, then my numbers will be so high I'll win and I'll be able to get in the competition. And I said, great, I'm going to get you on stage and I'm going to grill you on that shit. And you're going to have to explain why you put that varietal in that category. And most people don't want to have to get caught in a lie on a microphone. Right? Like this, is, this is kind of where it gets scary for people because you're exposed. So most people are pretty honest about it. And remember, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overall big picture guideline. It just allows you to understand that the market moves within those categories. And I've, I've been able to play the game for a long time differently because I've had cash registers. So cash registers let you ask a lot of questions and answer a lot of questions without a lot of bullshit. The register says, this thing moves, that's why I'm into velocity. What's the rate of speed your varietal moves compared to my varietal? And that way what we can do is we can compare which ones actually move the fastest if they're given the choice. So I give you the options and I set it up. What I do to, this is a good one too with velocity is, I take people that are in very uh, high level markets where they have people with absolute income and choice. And I let those people take a whole bunch of the varietals that I hold, propagate them and grow them themselves in their production system. And then we can compare where the speed is within choices. And what it does, it always lets me know that all four categories done correctly sell at the high level. And depending on where you're moving it to, different ratios of, of quantity, but high level is high level. And you can calibrate yourself by that. What do you got? We had this, uh, a question from the online, they said, how would someone determine which of the four varietals that their, their cannabis is, if they're trying to make sure that they put it in the right category, maybe they don't, you know, don't quite have the education that we have? Smell it. Straight up, that's the, that was the beauty of it. That's, I mean, that's why I came up with it. I wanted it as simple as possible. And I said, how do you perceive it? Because ultimately, your, your nostrils are pretty, I mean, we're not a dog or a bear, but we're pretty good. 
and we can say, is it earthy? And typically, if it smells earthy to you and you consume it, it's gonna take you on that relaxing ride. If you smell it and it's gasoline, you can kind of assume it's gonna be aggressive. And the same thing with fruits and florals. And, and florals, we would say herbal, complex. And fruits or anything in, in any fruit category, from grapes all the way through lemon limes. So it, what it does, it allows you to realize that most people are first going to use their nose and smell it. And they're not going to say, oh my God, that's incredible osamine profile. They're going to go, that shit smells like a banana. <laughs> and because who's educated in these verbiage, right? And so we get caught up in this. But the bottom line is that you're overwhelming people. What you want to do is you want to catch them. You want to inspire them. And then they'll hunt the information themselves and they'll be able to come in and say, man, I love a fruit, but I love it where it's awesome dominant. And they're like, oh, we have that. What you got? So you preach like differing, <clears throat> excuse me, making your plants different. And we all want to think that our stuff is special. Mm -hmm. and, but you know, we always come down to like the four major categories you said. If you had a hundred varieties, is there a place where we just can't differentiate personally those places, even though they might look genetically different, but we just can't smoke them and say, well, that's different. They all look like daddy. You know what I mean? So then what you have is redundancy and you just wipe out the ones that don't have the best characteristics as a cultivar. So, I mean, I make it simple. I don't, I'm aggressive on culling stock. And, I mean, I've had more plants go through my hands than anybody I personally know. And, and there's some things I really wish I had held because I can't replace them. It was because I was ignorant. I assumed that I would be able to find something like that again. And well, I learned that lesson a long time ago. So if it's something that's valuable to me, I make sure I keep it in redundant form. And I try not to stack too many things up. Like with the OGs, we use OGs as a good example because the OG market, which is blasting hot no matter where it is, and a lot of that is because it's a good opiate replacement. And for people who want to get an aggressive high, it works. But for people who have an opiate issues, which is, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 million Americans, um, it seems to be from like all the research I did, you know, Levin, I did research on some of these varietals to understand why was the trend, what the trend was. So I did a random sample of 1,000 people through my store. And I asked all these people who bought OG, why do you buy OG? And they privately told me I have an opiate issue. And it tripped me out because I'm not on pharmaceutical drugs. So that's something I'm not really intelligent about. I don't know pharmaceutical drugs because I don't do pharmaceutical drugs. So it tripped me out how many people were consuming it. And I said that OG will not go away until the opiate issue goes away. Then I started going through chemotyping and saying, let's go through all the different um, cannabinoid ranges. And it had nothing to do with it. It was all terp profiles. So, that, so this lets you know that OG is OG. But the trends in OG run from citrus to earth to gassy gas. So citrus would be like an SFV, earthy would be a ghost, um, blood diamond, HA cuts, gas. The market swings between them. And so I don't need 200 OGs. I need basically three. I need one that satisfies the perception of OG to me is gas and citrus. OG to someone else is gas and earth. And OG to the third person is straight gas. It lets me choose three. So I choose the Larry cut for, for our outdoor production, I choose the HA, and then I run the ghost. That gives me these three major distinctions within OG. I'm all in fuel. 
I don't need to worry about anything else. It makes it simple. And then the other 300 OG cups, I just get rid of them. Right? I share them with other people that are into it so that this way, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I hate to kill the lines, so I pass the plants out. I just give them to people. But I know what I keep because it lets me catch the trends. When, and right now we're in a full gas trend in California. So gas, gas is what they want. And it'll swing back. People get burned out on gas and they'll want some subtle citrus and all of a sudden you'll swing back in. Way in the back. Giant bubblegum thing on the end of the seat. So, Stafford, who's got a green one down the other end? So, yeah, this is all new to me as far as the, the, the four profiles. And, okay, I can see where the, the floral, you have different kinds of flowers, and then the fruity, you got all the different kinds of fruits. I'm having a hard time trying to distinguish the different earths and the different fuels. I mean, they seem like there's only so many, you know, you got a fuel thing. How many fuels are there? How many uh, smells of earth are there? I mean, is it a forest floor smell? I mean, what is there earth? So I just wanted you to maybe go into the distinction between fuel and earth. Fuel is gas. It, it's pretty clear when you're... And the thing about it is there doesn't have to be too many fuels. It, nowadays, it's basically chem-derived. And so it's... It, it, but it, that is not the origin of gas. Because we had gassy grass that was coming out in different morphology that had nothing to do with chem lines. We're connected to chem that had that tone. Chem releases some incredible cannabis into the world, and that's where the predominant direction is flowing through, but it's not the origin of it in cannabis. These things have always been present. And so I think that when you're defining it, it's easy. It, it smells earthy. Earthy in what way? Like a dirty floor. It smells earthy like what? Like earthy coffee. It smells like rotting wood. It, gas smells like, man, that's kerosene. No, that's gasoline. No, that's diesel fuel. You, you differentiate it in that way because the people that you're trying to sell the product to, I'm not gonna be, you're not going to be able to say to them, hey, this little subtle bit of humulene has changed your earthy profile. And they're like, what's humulene? They, unless they're brewing beer, they don't know. And so what I, what I recommend is to, is to not simplify what you do but to simplify your ability to quantify what you're doing so that the people who go to buy your products have some very clear imagery of what they're buying. You make it easy. When people ask me, I want to build a nursery and I want to create a library, how do I do that? I tell them, you break up it in four divisions. You have killer shit in these four zones. People will buy your product if they're, if they're doing it in all four areas. You don't look for a name brand. You're not looking for, I got Girl Scout cookie. Well, which one you got? Because there's about 7,000 of them right now. You got the cookie that does what you want it to do, which means it grows on your property, and it gives the people what they want, which is a heavy cookie dough, earthy base, with a little slight bit of gas, and it has a visual complexity that makes them say, ooh, I recognize that. And so it doesn't have to be this certain cut. Certain times that certain cut is the one you want, but for a lot of people it might not be right for you and where you're growing. And so that's why the categories work really well because it allows you to realize that you don't have to shoehorn a cutting into what you're doing. And even with like lines that you're working with, Gene, I love, I love me and Gene's work, right? Because Gene only works so many different parental stock lines. 
But because he has an ability to paint and move the picture, he does. So when you get into some of this stuff that's like the line vines, uh, the sky colors, you're going to get gas and citrus. The, the, you're going to get some lime flavor coupled up with gas. Um, which cutting, I don't know, which ones work for you on your property? If you work the seed lines, they're all pretty consistent in that area. And that's what you're trying to do in your region, is to create in these categories lines that work for you that are different than the lines that work for me where I am. And you're going to pick stuff that's going to have quality. What you have to do, though, is whoever's the best seller of the product that you know, let them tell you if it's quality. Let me be honest. And then get a couple of people who don't deal at all and say, would you buy it twice? We get it, we fall in love with our breeding work and we fall in love with our plant because this is the plant that bought my house. This is the plant that put my kid through school. Well, that was because the market was different and now they have choices and that's not the choice they want. Can you use that plant to base your new work from? Is it something that you want to carry forward? Can you modernize it? Can you spice it up? Can you put a little twist and add to it? Those are the things you have to look at, but it's still, it's going to fall within categories. And if you have too much of the same material that has the same profiles, it doesn't work. If you are in, and this is the same consideration, is that if you're in the extraction end of it, where you're an extractor, and for a lot of people that are doing, you know, hash extraction, it doesn't matter what the flower looks like. What they want is they want, they want a high yield of easily accessed resin. And if you're going after morphologically solid flour, that's not really the one that sheds the resin the most. You have to beat it up a lot, so you end up getting a lot of plant material. So you have to define who you are and what you do. And in like, for an example, like for me, this year in California, with the mess that's going on and the lack of stores, and, the, and they're going to they're gonna put the, reg the regulations through to allow these farms to produce. You're going to see so much herb come out, it's going to be crazy on flour. I'm probably going after crude. And someone goes, why would you do that? And I said, because my farm needs to make enough money to survive another year. And what that does, it allows me to stay in business, continue building soil, continue working on my genetic lines, so that when we start to clean up the system, we can actually start to build what I'm talking about. So there's a short term of you need to survive. And then there's a long term on how do you build brand identity and how do you build genetic identity because your brand is built off of the quality of the experience coming from that cannabis. And if we're all using, I use the same example all the time, if we're all growing the same shit, why? Because now we're in competition. I'm gonna get Girl Scout cookie from who? Let, let it get from the guys who cook it. But the people that are in your situation, these, these areas that have agricultural ability, and people that are cultivators that have the desire to cultivate at a higher level of standard, what you end up having is true branding. If you look at any product, there's a differential in value, and every product made has low-end entry point and high-end. The thing with our situation is that when it goes global, you'll make the high-end money. But in the meantime, you're going to be competing with the mid-market, because as people start dropping prices and it looks pretty good, they're going to... They're going to Check it out. When people talk about pricing, man, Oregon is where you need to look because that's eight bucks an eighth, 40 bucks an ounce at the store. And someone goes, oh, it's crap. And I'm like, really? Because you went there and bought some. Because I did. I went there and bought a bunch of it just so I could see 
what it was like to go buy so much pot it filled a shopping bag for 150 bucks. Because every store I went to was buy two, get four free. Just buy something and we'll give you anything because there's so much herb, we need to give this shit away. And everyone's like, it's because it's low quality. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's not. It's going through the testing process so we know it's not chemically contaminated. And the farmers there care just like you do. They're not a bunch of hackers. They're historical farmers too. They're just in a market where an $8 eighth of Dog Walker OG, which is a hard to get cut, that is really nice, is eight bucks an eighth, 40 bucks an ounce at the store. That means it's 20 bucks an ounce on the wholesale. Like, that's mind bending. And so we're all gonna go through this little price collapse and you're gonna come out of it because the bottom line is the system's gonna clear itself out. And when it does, a tremendous amount of the genetic material you're going to touch will not be accessible to you except through licensing. And so that's why you have to be able to create some lines. You only need a couple. If you had four different distinctions that fit this region and you allowed your groups to own the patents where you create your own LLCs and there's 42 of you in the LLC and under that collective group you own that varietal. What you have now is future stability and future money. Or you're gonna really just be farming. And like when I looked at this picture a long time ago, I said, someone said, oh, you wanna be a farmer? And I said, hell no. Farmers are broke, man. I like being a hustler. That's a tough one. And, and someone says, yeah, but you're a career grower. And I said, I know, but I don't see myself as a farmer because I see myself as more of a diversified entrepreneur who loves to grow pot. And that way I'm crystal clear about the business all the time. Because I know that in society, no one takes a better beating than a farmer. You have the lowest pay wage. You make $15 an hour after 20 years of working at a commercial nursery as a worker. You might make 65000 as the manager of a, of a nursery that's punching out almost a billion plants a year. But you're making 15 an hour after 20 years of working at a nursery. So when I really took a look at these numbers in real life and said, wow, Farming is dangerous. You have to be very intelligent and make sure that you're doing what's right. And the, the customers only care about your level of effort when they receive the, the subsequent amount of satisfaction. There's no pity. Nobody gives a shit about your struggle. They don't. And I'm selling enough grass for a long enough time through cash registers to know that you can, you can put, I put a sign up in a window with a skull and crossbones that said toxic pot, five bucks off an eighth. And I had a, a disagreement with the owner of the company about perception and what people really do. And I said, let me prove something to you really quickly. And I put the sign up and the speed that that weed flew out the door blew her mind. And she was like, I can't believe what I'm watching. And people would be yelling at us, how toxic is it? And I said, oh, her pesticides, fungicides, you know, the regular shit. <laughs> and, They'd be like, I'll cool with that. And they called their friends and, and it made this woman almost cry because she had this belief that people really cared. Most people don't have disposable income enough to care. Or you wouldn't be eating fast food. You know? As a commercial farmer, how do you get past that point? People don't care. And I, I'm dealing with that right now. Because poor God sending so much pot over my face mm -hmm. that I drop prices consistently. How do you get 
you gotta, you gotta ride this one out. You, and I had, a, I had a friend from uh, Los Angeles I was talking to. He was a, a successful old school businessman, not in cannabis. And we were talking about the enforcement issue and he started laughing and said, as soon as these big companies start to feel infringed from the black market, they will pressure the politicians in a way that we can't. And so what you'll see, they're doing it. And so it's gonna slow down the movement of the underground weed. And if, if you can ride this out, your goal is long-term. When I, when I saw the future and how I saw it, I realized that I had to look way down the road. And I realized that what I needed to do was develop my property so that it had some emotional contact. So people saw it, they went, oh, that's, that's pretty. That'll catch your eye. Then I had to make sure that they had products that they wanted to consume. And then I had to make sure that I wasn't pricing it out of existence so that only three people bought it. And your plan sometimes requires you to run your operation, but if last year my farm sat fallow because there was restrictions that were placed on me that would have forced me to plant in August. And I said, why? Why even bother? Why chase the risk? Is it really worth it? And I said, no. I'll just continue working at something else while I'm keeping my farm alive and building my farm. And that's what I recommend to people is that you, sometimes you can't just depend on the thing that you love to feed you like you have. You have to realize that protecting the property and protecting your location and your value is really the important part because your game that you want to be in was back then and down the road. The one you're in right now isn't the one you want to be in. And I was in Maine and someone was like, bro, we can move pot in the parking lot. We still can sell it in the parking lot. And I said, trust me, when you regulators get a hold of this, they're going to cut that shit right out because how do they know you're paying the tax when you're slinging it in the parking lot? And what people don't realize is that industry is created, on regulated industry is created on tax revenue is the first part they want. And they build the industry backwards from proposed revenue. So we want to get a billion we figure out how much industry we need to allow have happen to get a billion in taxes. They're not really concerned about your success because they know somebody will step up, fill in, pay the tax. So you have to realize you're kind of on your own and the only real support you have is with the people in the region. And if you're in a region that makes sense where you can grow in the ground, you have water that's decent, you have some form of reputation that you can parlay, an agricultural reputation, then you can actually get people to consider it because the story works. And what you want to do is you want to start taking a look at how other high-end manufacturers sell their products. You want to start taking a look at how they portray the picture. What are they really selling? What are people really buying? People aren't, like I, I, I uh, when I was looking at watches, I was tripping out on the resale value of the watch. And I have a watch on my wrist that's gone up in value since I've owned it. So I go, whoa, that's from someone else's branding because they knew how to create an image that made people believe it was worth money used to. And so what we have to do is copy it. I take a look at good wine branding and I look at, I look at Wagyu beef because it blew my mind that people pay 50 bucks for an ounce of steak. And I said, how the hell do you convince them? So I started looking at all the Wagyu producers and I started looking at how they said, the standards of beef don't even apply to us. We've created our own standard. And I said, oh, the brilliance. You're already saying, don't look at the standards others use. Let us convince you of our own genius. <laughs> and it was so well done, it got me all caught up in it. I wanted to go buy Wabu beef. 
and 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 it was such an incredible. It was simple, but it was it was so clear that there was a difference. And you have to work off the psychology of creating the difference. And the thing is that you have to be able to make sure that you're not spending too much money right now chasing stuff that doesn't have any real value. And when you get into your, your genomics work, you have to team up. You have to do big enough population sifts to find the outlier plant that you go, holy Christ, this is the one. This is the one that we all agree we would buy over and over and over. Josh, Josh did a really nice breeding job. Josh runs the show. Um, he, he got a good eye for selection. I mean, I give that kid props, man. He can select some good grass. Not everybody can. And so he brought me this plant. He said, man, I selected this out of a tremendous number of plants. It's not his favorite plant because he, he prefers a different profile, but it is, it is a, a, a cornucopia of a fruit salad. It's got so much crap going on in it, and it's like syrup in your mouth. And I said, oh my God, for the fruit category, for people who like those types, that's an incredible varietal. So he gave it to me so that I could share it with other farmers. So instead of him just saying, hey, this is, this is just for me alone, I'm going to give it to other farmers, which is other craft groups like this, because you're part of a, a global community. You just, we don't really realize it because we've all been living in our own little mini-worlds. Humble County, man, we were the worst. We thought we were like kings on planet Earth because we had such killer lives. And then all of a sudden that changed and we realized, holy shit. And for me to travel around the world and see all these groups makes us realize that our population is small, but it's real. And within that population, we create that as a global branding. We've started to develop material that's, that's unique to our regions that fits within known categories to make it easy for you to have no redundancy. So you're not overloading a single level. The same products come out, but enough differentiation that showcase, and then you work with your group so that the, the farm has enough product to produce and you fill the void. You don't have to go buy more farmland to keep producing. You can work your farmland. The French model works good, and I have friends that say that's how we should adopt it, but there's no way in hell they're gonna allow any farmer to have that much value like they did in France. If, if they did that today in France, you wouldn't have those appellations the same way. They didn't know the value that was gonna take place, I think, over time. So we're in a little different situation, but the realization that your zone, all of you could be producing the same cannabis and you would not be competing with each other because really down the road, it will be moving into a much bigger basket. So you got a question. Yeah, there's a couple of questions. It seems like uh, coming around here, we'll pass the mic from person to person. But, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind Kevin, digging in a little more there, you know, you're saying uh, in creating this collective regional, you know, genetic multiple profile, how, can you go a little more in detail uh, about how you set up those contracts? Because I worry that, you know, when putting up that kind of money, say for a scrub and you want to clean a genetic and then share it amongst a group, you know, people get burned a lot and then get, puts that, you know, bitter taste. How have you guys maintained that respect and that trust amongst each other when putting up that kind of money and, you know, without having to get lawyers involved, you know, too much, right? Because lawyers have to look at the document. How do we do that? <laughs> you always get a lawyer involved. <laughs> be like really clear about this shit that we can be cool, but if you're involved with me in business and you're part of a corporation, then typically you have an ear that could inherit your position. You just don't die and you lose your position in the corporation. So the next thing you know, you have new people in the corp that might not have started the corp. 
and they have different values than you. So you have to lay anything contractual that involves long-term plans. You get a common lawyer to sit down and they craft the contract and you all find out what's, what's equitable and fair. To me, that's the only way to do this. You, you have these incredible options on how you can function and there's guidelines to help you understand to what level of protection you need. But anything that involves money, business, and more than you, get a contract, get a lawyer. Just, it has to, you have to protect yourself. Because the problem is, is that sometimes you see people who you really love and they change. And sometimes you change and you're like, you know what, I wanna get out of the project. I'm done, I'm having health issues. I no longer want to be part of the farming. I can't, I can't physically do it. And so they're gonna leave, what do they, they leave with? How, how is the genetics disseminated? Who's in control of the material? So this way what you have is you have the ability to hold this stuff in some capacity that protects all of you. And it just, you have to have those contingencies. It's why you create wills. Because I know that your brother was a great guy, but boy, when the money hit the table, man, he, he hit the table too. And everyone's in horror all the time on who screwed who, but just accept that it happens. And when you create the contracts and the pieces, it gives you at least some protection, and it allows you to be able to have a little level of surety where you can invest a little more. And I don't mean with finances, but with yourself. Okay, what do you got? My question is about doing plant sifts with genomic testing and early veg to find outliers in these four categories? You, you can, you can do it for, what I found though is that like, early turf testing is kind of like early CBD testing. It doesn't seem to hold as constant throughout, but I can definitely do it for THC varietals. So I use early predicative testing to hunt CBD, THC ratio, CBG, so when I what, I, what I did for some friends was I said, listen, you need some fuel-based material that's gonna throw some numbers on top of your varietals because the market is numerically driven. And, and as that changes, well, we can change, but this was years ago I did this. So I said, listen, I said, you guys are getting the shit kicked out of you because your, your varietals are coming in at 14 to 15 on a lab test and the places won't touch it. I said, let's throw another 10 points on it and I, it'll, it'll change. And I said, so let me go and go through some fuel lines that I have, and in a year, I'll give you a mail. And so it let me run these lines out and find the outlier clusters so that I could segregate those clusters and then only breed those. I wasn't breeding for anything other than that. That was my prime concern. Morphological traits was next, and so that I'd have some similarity in what we would have in profile, but numbers and morphology. The, the, the number clusters started to come together quickly, and I started to really look for high THC within a, with an exceptionally low CBD level and a very high CBG level, because the high CBG levels let me see unconverted potential. So if I had high CBG and high THC, I knew I had even higher THC potential. And if I had the CBD low enough, I knew that it wouldn't fill up the bread basket with CBD, so my THC numbers would increase even more. And this was all for market perception. And so I ran that a couple times and got my clusters, pulled my mail, laid it on top of a bunch of plants, tested the plants, and it threw numbers on all of them. Now what you do is go through that group 
and find the ones that have the small quality. But the bottom line is I'm throwing seven to 10 points on a varietal with that method, which is what was needed to get you in the door. And then now you can look for the exceptional. But with CBD, when we started doing that, it helps, but you still have to run the, the plant all the way through fruition, at least the first time, because, man, this light makes my eyes blink. See, it's like a little grin for me. Um, the, the CBD doesn't seem to be as steady through production. So once you determine what it is, it doesn't vary. Because people kind of question me on that when they were like, me, it varies time to time. I said, no, it's just not so incredibly informative. So we used predicated testing to drive CBD levels when we first got into it a long time ago. That was the first time I did predicated work was with CBD. But we didn't see the same precision as we do with THC. And with Terps, they fluctuate and change, and so early Terp levels don't give it to me. But what it, what, it, what it does with those directions is that right now, out of your seed line, especially if you hold all the stock, you're able to say, well, listen, over the next couple of years, we need big numbers because the market has to be educated, but I can't tell them they need to be educated or they educate you by not buying the product. They get angry at you. So what you do is you give them what they want and then you give them the dialogue they need. My discussion the other day with you guys was that you get a common website, common, it falls over your whole region. Under that website, you have your banners. You do not need to build your own identity. You build a common identity. And then you start to sit down and say, what makes us different? Why do we do what we do? And you start to be able to give people information. And you give it to them in digital form in terms of video because people don't like to read anymore. And I'm someone who likes to read, but I, I realize that that's not the norm anymore. So that's why I do video work. I'm not a video guy. But I realize the truth is they'd rather get it through that method. So what you do is you start to create, these what we do, this is where it is. But what we want to do is we want to get into more balance. We want to have more variety because we want the people who consume the product to have better choices. We want them to, we know that things fall within these ranges but we want to be able to get you to where you find what you want. Where you want an aggressive earth, where you're very relaxed, or you're somewhat stimulated and stable. You give the options and you give the education and then you don't lecture them about how they should do this. You let them know that these are the things that you're learning and discovering. And what it does, it takes the people on this discovery with you. And now you get them to listen. You can't go in the room and tell them, listen to me. You gotta go in the room and listen to them and then you can say, hey, I hear, I hear questions that you're asking. Could I help you with an answer? And this is my perspective. And instantly, now you're somebody that they'll look at because they don't see you as a salesman. And now it opens up your choices to start moving again with the same lines. You don't have to flip everywhere. From, from, a, from a small set of paint pigment, you can paint a lot of color. And you just have to be aware of where you are in time. So in the future, the numerics will matter if we're hunting specific cannabinoids where, hey, I noticed that for me, I really benefit from higher levels of this. And you're like, hey, we noticed those higher levels are in the fuel lines. We noticed those are in the fruits. We've noticed that this production methodology, I was talking to Steve the other day, and he was talking about experiments that he ran where he noticed elevated levels of THCV. And so he ran it over and over again to prove it. He said, whoa, we found out that if we do this, we can increase these levels. So what you'd be able to do is, is take the varieties that you want and change some of the cannabinoid profiles through methodologies and give people choices that way. But you're always letting them know what you're doing. 
and you're giving them the information and you're holding the genetics in hand and you have contracts among who's producing it so you can protect it. And what you end up having is an ability to be successful for a long time. Most of you in here are younger than I am. And so you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna come in, like me, I realized that my, I was gonna realize my dream when I was in my 60s. Like when I realized that I wasn't gonna get to do this as a young dude, and I said, wow, I'm not gonna get to do this as a young person, I'm gonna do this as an old person. I had to say, okay, I got you, I got you. I had to emotionally steer that for a long view. And what it did was it allowed me not to lose track of where I was heading. So that I realized, I got you, it's not a two-year game, it's a 22-year game. And in 22 years, if I'm alive, I wanna be where I wanna be. And I can be there. And so that's kinda how I recommend for you to see it, to realize that the material you're holding right now will keep getting compressed. These guys are gonna come in and do these incredible projects and they're gonna create some really crazy franken dope. But does it mean that the people who smoke it and consume it like it? And that's what you have to realize, that you're working with experiential cannabis. You're working with can, that's why um, I, I always go tell people, go back to the, the inception of cannabis into the country. Try to get back in the late 70s, 80s, where you really, for a few moments, you had some unbelievable quality cannabis being rolled around. Those varietals were selected by the people in those countries off of what they desired in their lives. And those choices, you can realize, well, I got you. I can mine from that to paint new pictures. And a lot of the stuff I see now, I just call it muddled. It's all the same shit poured in a container, swirled around, it's a smoothie. You know, and I'm like, it's great, but like, I don't want all that in one thing. Can I have it separate? No, you have to have it jumbled. So for me, you know, we go back in time, find the older people, there's tons of people that are in the, they're close to 80 right now that are, the, that are the foundation of our industry. They're the ones that really drove this shit forward. And they're older now, and a lot of them are too old to want to put up with this shit. And so they have stock that they've held and you can use the in vitro mechanism to crack them. So you can use laboratory methodologies to crack old seeds so that you don't screw up. And you have an ability to mine older material that hasn't been looked at in a while, weave that into what works for you now, and that stuff is yours. You can start to, especially if it doesn't fall under some of the broad utility patents. So broad utilities cover a bigger spectrum. You know, one-to-one, no mere scene. Well, somebody already owns that one. So you might not want to go and create a one-to-one -one ratio, no mercy varietal. You might have to say, hey, it's a one-to-two or a one-to-three, but a one-to-one, -one, no mercy, they got you. So you have to kind of take a look, and what you do is collectives is you get a hold of plant patent attorneys, and you ask them, hey, could you help me understand the current situation of patents right now, because they're all listed, and you'll be able to start to figure out what has been taken from you already, and don't chase that road. Otherwise, you, you, what are you doing? If it's for your own smoke, that's great. But if you're gonna put it on a farm and put it on a shelf, and somebody hits you with a, you owe me money, you're screwed. What you got? You can, you can shoot it to me and I'll, I'll repeat for you. Oh, you can hear the mic Sweet, yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying, Kevin. I guess uh, I have a two-part question that you started to expand on there a second ago. Um, I had a lot of, I love what you're saying about the regional strains. You know, I have uh, varieties that I've had for 20 years and they, they were 20 years old when I got them. And to be honest, we don't even know what they are. Like I just call, we call them Afghan, the hash plants. Like, you know, 
back then, um, you know, people, at least where I was, they weren't talking as much about where, you know, they, they were old strains that came over. Um, and I found over the years, like I'm, I'm in Ontario, mostly outdoor, um, and I've definitely found, I, you know, I bought strains from seed companies all over North America, Amsterdam, all over, and to grow them outdoors in our climate, they're, they're mostly just shit, they don't work, right? Um, so I love what you're saying about the regional, because with my experience over a couple decades, um, I always go back to my own, own strains, because they work, and they're great, and I love them. Um, but what I'm, I guess my question is a little bit too hard is that I have a lot of old seeds um, that, that aren't germinating, you know, they've, they've been traveling around with me for years and years, bags and bags of them. Um, you know, I have some that I've been able to protect. They can resonate with what you said the other night about, um, you know, the police officer goes home and eats dinner and you're still hiding in the bushes, you know, like, it was hard for me to keep these, some of these strains going over prohibition and moving and marriage and all these different things. Um, but I'd love to try to crack back into those seeds. So I heard you say a minute ago about the in vitro. So I'm wondering if you can expand on how you can, um, seeds that aren't germinating, how we can crack into that. Um, and then the second part is just sort of around tissue culture. It's something that um, I want to look into. And I realize that, you know, you, you need labs and, Everything's got to be clean, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about if tissue culture is something that the home grower could potentially set up with extra experience, maybe knowing some people that work in labs, but do you, do you see it in the future as being something that's specific to like labs and white coats, or is that something that that technology, those skills can start to eventually transfer to like smaller scale craft growers? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, the first one is with the oldest stock. In vitro just means you're using a petri dish and you're laying the seed into it and that petri dish solution is going to buffer it and they're going to be able to open it up in a method where as soon as it starts to open it's receiving sugar source and hormones to, to move forward. And the seed stock is too... I, I tell people all the time, I've opened up a lot of seeds. So, so I was, someone always gives me a lecture on how to crack seed. Oh no, if you do this it works, and I'm like, this shit's priceless. If you screw it up, it's gone. And so I waited a long time to be able to get material into a lab so I could have them do it in a test tube. Because the material holding is not replaceable. And so all that old stock, I get old stock from people all the time, and I just, and I tell them too, I said, no, you don't gotta give it to me, just hold on to it, and I'll get it into a, a, a scrub, we'll, we'll open it up, and that's a tool that's coming. So you're going to be able to have laboratories. California's, I think, popping like 400 micropop labs. So we're going to have 400 new laboratories. Everybody's going to lab. The problem with micropop is that, yes, you can do it at home, but most of the stock you're propping at home, you're kind of muddling your way through. And when you're looking at a professional prop operation, you're looking at about 10 different hormonal formulations that you use to determine where your direction lie. So I take a plant, I'll take 10 cuttings, I'll lay them into 10 different formulations and see, do they work? The problem with cannabis tissue culture is there's no data on recipe. And so about 11 years ago, a friend of mine was a college professor who had his own private microprop lab in his backyard in a container. Brilliant dude, and I, and I mean brilliant, I watched it kick the shit out of him, but I finally saw him strike this white Russian I had, 
And what I saw was a replication rate that blew my mind. So it allowed me to see cannabis being reproduced at a phenomenal level of efficiency and quality. But he could only get out of those 40 plants that I brought him that he worked with for a year, he could only get really one of them dialed in because it takes a lot of work. And so what happens is, is that you lay out your initial 10 and you find one that works best. From that 10 solution, you then do it again. And you eventually start to find the formulation that works best to give you the most consistent rates and allows that cutting to actually survive in that, in that formula. That's time. And that mostly is people who have a really high level of chemical knowledge where you have a chemistry degree. You're, you're, you're really pretty bright on this one thing. Most of the propagators I meet have PhDs and have 10 to 15 years propagating something, strawberries, orchids, fruit trees. And I watch these people in multi-million dollar labs filled with buildings, filled with people that have master's degrees and also experience in the craft, getting chicken done. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> well, it is, it's kind of fun because, you know, we, we always think science is so powerful, but it's really nice to see scientists kind of humbled. Because what it does, it lets you understand that, that fundamentally none of us know a lot. And that science is really good at repeating a thing, but they, when they have to figure it out, they stumble like we do. And so when I see people at that level of intellect, with that level of infrastructure, with that level of experience, getting shaky done, and I tell people, don't waste your time trying to do it yourself because the prices will come down. The prices will come down. You don't have to pay 10 grand to prop a plant if it's a strawberry because they already have the formulas. You just go pick up a strawberry plant, you know it's virally clean. And so you'll have labs pop up in Michigan and you'll have an entire cluster of you go and do a contract with the lab and say, hey, we want you to scrub the material and we don't want it released. And you don't need to put a lab together. I watch people do this all the time and I'm like, why would you build an entire lab when you could go buy the plant? Because I'm like, why? What's the point? And I know someone who sells a lot of this equipment for home use, uh, Bill Microclone, right? And he's a great guy, good propagator, and he sells some killer home equipment and it gives you ideas how to do it. And I see people do micro-prop at home in their own laminar flow hoods made out of cardboard boxes. I mean, it's possible, but we're talking, you want to do a Maristan scrub? You have the ability to actually outrace this shit and you know what you're doing and you have the resources and the time. It takes like five months to scrub some of this depending on how long it takes you to figure out the base formulation that'll actually let it happen. Now, once you do it, now you can mix it up in an hour. But it didn't take you an hour to figure it out. It's like what people say to me all the time. Hey, Kevin, I got a quick question. I'm like, no, it came out of your mouth quick. It's not going to be quick for me to answer. They're like, no, no. I said, no, I'm serious. You're asking me a five-hour question. Yeah, I said, so sometimes the perception of time is really relative of who's looking at it. And so in your case, you have all this killer old stock. You hold it. You'll be able to prop it in labs. And then you'll be able to use laboratory services because the prices will go down. So I'm saying right now it costs this much. It's going to have to go down a couple grand within a year because they're going to be competing services. Just like the nurseries, you can get clones for a couple bucks driven 400 miles each way in California. Six bucks with a 800 mile radius, like 400 to drive to you, 400 back. If you buy, 
a thousand. So for a four thousand dollar clone order, which isn't big, you're driving eight hundred miles. Think about that. How do you compete with these guys? So they're all fighting each other to the death. The labs will fight each other to the death too. But what you want to do is really find labs that didn't go into cannabis, but they're agricultural labs who just expanded <coughs> into cannabis. Because they have a longevity, so if they suddenly don't do well because of cannabis, they're not suddenly out of business and where's all my shit? And so what you want to be able to do is use existing ag services and utilize technologies from groups that are successful in it and other injuries and realize that they do not have this stuff dialed in at all. At all. I don't care. Everybody I meet is struggling. It, it's a process. And once they dial it in, man, it's impressive to see. And once the scientists are on it, they're on it like a dog. They won't let go of it. And they will solve the riddle. But for, to you to have to do it yourself doesn't make any sense because it's so much easier to do conventional propagation. And if you're not a nursery where you're moving plants and people through your facilities and you don't have massive canopy, it's easy to control your problems. It's when you start getting into a lot of plants that there's problems. Smaller gardens are never an issue, really, because it's easy to see everything. So for the, for the home farmer, a smaller commercial farmer, I would say get scrub material and do conventional propagation because why wouldn't you? It's just so easy, you know? And I like, like Wendy, up here the other night, she loves the water cloners, and I, and I love them too for what they do. Josh runs them. It's just if you're, if you're wanting density to hold, as soon as you do that, you have to go into your situation. If your ability to move from there to there is there, you do that. If not, you go into some kind of secondary transfer media. So you'll just figure out what methodology works best for you, and then you conventionally propagate, and you're doing testing on your cultivars for 200 bucks to find out, are you picking up any viral contamination? And if you do, then you can get it scrubbed, or you can actually talk to your other farmers and say, hey, do you favor test one of your pieces and get me fresh cut? And you're able to constantly utilize each other's skill sets. So it, it, it couldn't be any more helpful. So when I have something that's clean, I can then share it with someone and say, listen, I know this is completely clean and scrubbed. So start with this and run as fast as you can and see if you can outrun the problems. And if you get caught up, come back and do it again. And that's the best way to do it, man. Make technology work for you, but don't try to, it, it's like trying to create your own power plant. A lot of times it's just easier to say, I got you, it's gonna cost me $3 million to build it when I can buy, I can buy electricity for 40 bucks. You know? Yeah, I don't wanna do that. I mostly just wanna get into this old genetic Yeah. You know, <laughs> I saw you walk up, I thought you'd throw me off the stage. No, 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 yeah, you're good. Okay. I'm just trying to try to facilitate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my question is, have you seen a correlation between what people decide to purchase based on smell and what's actually effective for them medicinally? You know, it, what the, the hard part nowadays is that in California you can't smell the weed at all. So you, have to, you can't smell it before you pick it up. But ultimately, when it comes to medically, and, and how we define medical is effect. So what's the difference between recreational cannabis and medical cannabis? Your, your need, but same cannabis. And so if we have them consume it with a scent, it sends them in the direction of what they want for feeling. Now, if they're saying, hey, I need a specific cannabinoid in my body because it does something special, then that's a very unique customer who comes in and says that to you. Man, I really need to have this ratio with this. You rarely ever get anybody who walks in a store that says that to you. 
that's a really developed client. And most of the time, if they're that developed, they basically have to grow their own stuff because they're never going to be able to buy it twice. They don't have any stability. So those are outlier customers. But the bottom line is, when you smell it, you want, just like you when, you, when someone gives you a smell some grass, you're like, oh, that smells good, but I'm not a hazy kind of guy. Because you already know that the mouth isn't going to be what you want, and you know that the, the high might be not exactly what you seek. But I noticed, like, for me, as I got older, I kind of turned down some of the volume on my intensity of what I wanted, and I wanted a little bit more balanced effect. So I said, wow, as you get older, your, your taste buds change, and also your desires of what effects you have change. And so we constantly move through this spectrum of what works for us, but the majority of people base their first initial opinion on that smell. Instagram herb won't matter over time. We may use these tools, but at some point in time, the reality of the flower is the reality of the flower. And if you bought it and you were unhappy with it and it was the greatest picture you ever took, you wouldn't go buy it twice so you could take another picture. You'd just be like, man, that was a nice picture I took, but I'm not buying that shit twice. It didn't do the job and just gave me kind of off high. And, and that's kind of how I see it just in patterns from selling so long. So uh, I want to... Oh, right. I want to uh, address this, this Instagram weed, but from a different angle, right? Because we're all business people here as well. And there's this crazy phenomenon that started in your old hood in Oakland, right? This designer exotics, right? And the first one was the ball berries, right, from Gas House. And it blew everybody away when it was selling $200 eighths at Boundary Bay in San Francisco, right? And then almost instantly, it was suddenly being diverted. And like, like, uh, like black market dudes like Humboldt Beginnings is selling it in Sacramento for $200 in its original retail packaging. And then suddenly, folks in Florida are like, I want to do that too. So they fake the packaging in Florida, and now they've got like ball of berries like that are being produced locally right but it but it brings us all the way back to what you mentioned yesterday these four thousand dollar pounds in the retail market of this this incredibly hyped incredibly bag appealed flower um but then it gets and then it gets ripped off and ripped off and ripped off and so then they went with the runs and then they went with the mac one which freaked cap out right because he didn't like to see his stuff sold for two hundred dollars an eighth but there's, there's, there's a genius all the way along, right? There's the work that was put in to justify $200 ace, which now are now more like 150, but still crazy. And then you got all the, all the, all the um, black market guys who are then ripping off that business model to make it work in their locale. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge, it's an interesting dynamic, but I think there's a lot to learn about uh, business decisions in that. So I just wanted to hear you riff on that whole thing. Totally. Uh, like, certain companies are smart in the sense where they realized they were in markets that were ultra-trendy. And so they realized that if they could create proprietary things and then pretend that they came out of massive sifts, this was one out of 11 million, then everybody goes, whoa, I'm the only one that has this. Let me take a photo. Because exclusivity in, in certain things, when you're in a highly competitive world, these little tiny details are the only thing that makes you feel like you're valid. So you're, my weed is killer. I have nothing else. I'm basically getting shit kicked out of me. But in, in the one thing I'm doing here, I take a picture and I'm somebody. And, and people are good at that type of marketing. But I don't think that applies to all places. I think it applies to some very specific urban environments 
where you have high clusters of people with high clusters of money. Anybody regular can't afford the 200 bucks. And if you bought it, you'd be like, Jesus Christ, it's pot. I could have bought four bags of grass for that and I would have been happy, but it's not that much better. It is nice and it is beautiful and it is good grass, but is it worth four times the price? People that have disposable income in cities can afford it and it's a status item. It's like trendy sneakers. When I go to Southern California, I would see the same thing. I go, wow, you guys got nice hair and killer shoes. And I go, wow, everyone has really nice hair. Like, I looked around, and I'm like, wow, this, everyone's hair was perfect. There wasn't a single fucking hair out of place. And I realized that must matter there. And then your, your shoes have to be fly. And so I, I went to this facility to go check it out with some friends. And I look like the janitor. So all the, people that, all the people that are in the store are looking at me like I'm the janitor. And, and, and all of a sudden, all these people that knew I was in town started coming to the store to say hi. And the two girls that were working there said, who the hell are you? And everybody and their brother knows you. And I started laughing. I said, because I look like the janitor. So you figured that I, and they started laughing. And they said, can we take a photo with you? And I said, yeah, I'm the world's most famous janitor. <laughs> and, and that lets you kind of understand those markets. And so if you're in those markets, that matters. You know, to me, OG Kush was the first, in was the first um, uh, internet weed, where it was hyped up heavy before anybody really got their hands on it. So there was this pre-built push. And now you have, then you had the music era, where everybody was rapping about the varieties they were selling. But those, those go up and down quick. The Bay Area is kind of cultish on cannabis. And so when the cookies launched that empire out of there, they were in the right place to do it. And they were able to utilize uh, an incredible amount of quality branding. And they got, they got tied into companies that had an ability to drive and push the product. Because a lot of the companies that came into Canada said, hey, we know how to do this. We know how to do supply chain management. We know how to advertise. We know how to create hype. We know how to make the perception seem hotter. And when it's bumping in California, the rest of the United States wants to touch it. So we see the trends begin and then basically die. And then, you know, Gorilla Glue come out. I think Michigan area was where it first really started popping. And so that's a trendsetter, and it changed cannabis in, in the way that it did. A tremendous amount of people grow the bridal. So each, 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 each area has an impact. But I would say, you know, Bay Area, L.A., you know, really sets the trends. So if you're trying to go into those markets, you know, you need to make sure that you have some differentiation and you have to be able to utilize an intelligent marketing strategy, but I don't think it's Instagram for most people because I can go buy myself 50,000 followers right now. So it isn't like, I go look at my followers. I said, no, I said, do they actually follow you? They give a shit about you? What you need to be able to have is, is the ability to penetrate multiple media directions and be in so many different places that you're noticed. And that way what you have is you have attention. It takes nine times approximately to hear an ad for it to sink in. So if you don't punch an ad into someone's head nine times, it didn't work. So the only way that, you know, that these groups to me is you do this, is you do it to where what you're punching in is you're punching in Michigan's cherry region. And you're punching that into their head all the time so that that's what they hear. And then the imagery is that. And then everyone falls under that label. And that's the way that you're able to, to compete with this kind of marketing concepts because the people that you're competing against that are moving these incredible values, they have supply chain control and they know the people that own the stores 
and they know that they have an ability to create agreements that work because the people that run the stores are also corporate. And the people who are in distribution are corporate. Very few of the people in large cannabis have come from cannabis. The only people that come from cannabis in cannabis are the growers at these facilities. No one else in the supply chain had enough money, really. And so the, you're kind of stuck in a different situation where you may not be able to light the fire that way, but what you do is you light a long-term fire and you go after the reality that hot pot on the net doesn't always mean Purple Punch is a good example. I think it's some of the prettiest weed I've ever seen in my life. I was so impressed when I saw my first pound of that that I was like, that stuff glistened. And it was a good pound too. Like, this kid could grow. And he was like, look at this. And I said, oh my God. And me and Pedro, my, my Polynesian partner, we sat down and said, oh, we're going to smoke a joint of this. We're going to be so impressed. And we looked at each other and we said, where's the punch? Like, there was nothing <laughs> behind that weed. And it was gorgeous. It couldn't have been any prettier. So, were I hyped and popular? But will it be something that transcends time? No. And so the hype is the hype, but is there some reality behind it? And the reality why these varieties work that are hyped is because they're derivatives of things that worked prior. And so when you're, when you're talking any of these things that have cherry tones, they've been sexy since Garberville Purple Kush came out, and then it was the perp, and then it was cherry pie, and then it was into the cookie, and then it's into the gelato. And they're weaving the same threads through all these different fabrics. So fundamentally, you think you have a new coat, but every thread on it is from a bobbin of thread 25 years ago. And that lets you kind of understand that they have an ability to do things that you don't through hype and market. And I think that the average individual has to work in, in a collective group. Humboldt County did an appellation where we, we fought and got an appellation. So we have a set designated zone of production and anybody who steals our name, we can sue you and bounce you out of that. And then we have a special seal that says the cannabis was produced only in Humboldt. That lets us then derive a greater profit down the road, but it also ties us all in together to where we realize if we all do a little bit of push on the brand, we're able to further the brand because you understand that that brand adds value to you. And that's what's really more important than you trying to hype a varietal or hype yourself. It's to hype your region, hype everybody in the region, and establish an umbrella that allows you to make money continuously through the course of your farming career. Or otherwise, you're up and down, and it's volatile. Did that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have a quick question. So uh, there's an older gentleman that I know that gifted me some Pink Panther, right? And uh, what I'm wondering is on your, when you talk about your balanced chemotypes and everything, I say if I, because I only have like four seeds, but they're like 28 years old. If I get lucky enough to get one to pop and then I get to reproducing it, is there, and I'm in an, I'm in a illegal state, so is there a way or some type of testing that I could do that would be like for a home guy to check my, uh, my, my turpins or my chemotypes to see if I can, like you say, how I can call it out so I can try and bring this back. Well, you only got four, four seeds, so you, your population is pretty small. I mean, if I only had four seeds and they were 28 years old, I, I wouldn't touch them for a minute. I wouldn't play with it at all. I would just put them away and just realize that you have a sarcophagus. You have a vessel from time. It's valuable. 
And you want to you want to see a good example is go to Mexico and realize that there's more pyramids under dirt than there are exposed. And I asked the archaeologist I was talking to, I said, why would you do that? He goes, because once we open them up, we've got to preserve them, we've got to take care of them, they're going to be exposed to damage. He said, it's just easier to keep them buried in dirt until we can get at, get at them. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm talking there was miles of buried pyramids. And it tripped me out, but it was the truth. It was that the material's too priceless to screw around with. And so for you, when you're able to get the four seeds into some, into some lab situation where they can open them up, all four of them come out and see if you have a male, you can go into it or self them and get a bigger population. And then now from that bigger population, you can play with it and weave it into other things. Grow it out to full fruition first. Just numbers in your case, you know, you 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 have you have stock that someone gave it to me, it's this. And he and I'm not knocking who gave it to you, but he remembers it as this. It's twenty Totally, no, I see the Polaroids too, but like, it, you'd be surprised at how things just don't necessarily reflect accuracy over time. So the main point is that what you need to do is you need to preserve the seed because it's old and it comes from somebody you have a connection to. Open these things up. You might find all of them suck. Like, it's truth. You're <laughs> like, oh, wow, this is, this is bunk. And what you do though is you still don't get rid of them. You open up the population and you find, can you extract qualities from them? It's kind of like when you tap in land race stock, right? So when you tap in real land race stock, oh my God, you go into thousand different plants to find something that you really want because they didn't need to have a single cultivar work. They were doing massive broad spectrum sifting and they were combining all the cannabinoids so that what you got was this unbelievably balanced effect because you were exposed to hundreds of plants mixed into one from thousands of fields mixed into one. So when you're working with stock like that, it's really, is it building block material? Is there neat things you can pull from it? Is there unique genomic material you can pull from it to then derive a line that you can bring other material in that allow you to have something that someone else doesn't that they can't patent so that you can say, ah, that's the beauty of old stock. The scientists right now are trying to hit up people that caught cases to see if they can go back into the police records to get the seeds out of the hold. But they don't hold your stuff that long. That's the thing is that they don't, you don't hold um, your case material for 25 years. They, or they toss it, dumpster it, whatever they do with it. But the bottom line is they don't hold it. So I had scientists hit me up saying, hey, can you go after your friends who caught all these cases to see if we can get the material pulled from hold so that we can predate some of the patents? And so you have people trying to say, look, you're trying to patent material that was present prior in circulation. It's an argument that goes against the ability to say you create it. And, but it's, it's the same thing that those populations are going. And so the stuff that you have has a high value primarily to you emotionally because someone gave it to you from the past that you're connected to. And, it, and, and for me too, I have things that matter to me because of who gave it to me. And that's what drives us. That's the emotional part of you is what really makes you push forward when shit is right. But it doesn't always mean it's the right route to go with your business. 
And in your case, because of your situation, it's tough because you need to do a population to make an increase. You can't compress it to two plants and dial it in. And with one plant, I built my world. You're going to have to go through bigger population, and you're going to need to be able to look at these plants and do they actually function and work in the environment I'm in. And if you're in a, a state that's less than friendly, that's really tough. So what you end up doing is, you know, events like this are nice because what you get to do is you get to be in an audience with people who are very like-minded. And, and I, I work with a couple people on the West Coast. So I have some friends on the West Coast, uh, one in Oregon and one who's basically travels. But he has operations in multiple states. And he's older. The guy up in Oregon's younger. And then there's me. And we hunt varietals. But we share them between us. So it lets us hunt something heavy and then share the winner. So what it does, it lets my friend in Oregon get access to stock that he couldn't get his hands on. It lets me get stock that I couldn't get my hands on. It lets my other partner do breed work with that stock that we don't have the resources to work with at the time. We've never screwed each other. And I don't have a contract with those guys. These are the guys I hang out with. And so we work cons consistently in that way. Because otherwise, how are you going to uncover all these outliers? How are you really going to hunt them up? And what you have to have is people who have, if you meet someone here that's got some really good grass and they're about it, and you feel comfortable with them, then you realize that they might not be a bad person to mess around with, to play with your stock, because they've got some discernment on varietals, and then you feel ethically connected to them. Now you have somebody who says, could you favor, could you please take this and, and multiply it? Because I have people do that to me all the time. Could you give me a favor, Kev? Could you please hold this and then lay it into something so we can get seed form, so we can hold it back. Could you take this and hold it for a year until I return and then give it back to me? So you always work in some kind of loose collaboration, but that's what you need. You need the ability to get the seed into someone's hand who can do a larger population sift for you. And then between the two of you, you kind of, is the person still alive? Yeah. Okay, then that... Totally, then what he'd be able to do is he'd be able to be the, the guide on what reason did he keep it and what was it like to consume and where was the unique qualities and traits. And as you looked at it morphologically, where did you see those traits come out in those plants? And that's going to help this whole sifting process. Otherwise, you just sift in it raw. But, you know, um, Jackson gave a good example the other day of when he's when he's uh, uh, sniffing his plants, if he smells a specific smell on the stem, he knows that it's gonna create a gas profile. And it wasn't a gas smell that he smelled it. I'm trying to think of pickles. It was dill pickle. So when, when Gene smells dill pickle on the stems of some of his varietals, he knows that almost without a doubt, the trait that's gonna pass on through the progeny is gonna be fuel. And so you need to have the older gentleman that you have talked, that you've got the varietals from, and he's going to help guide you on what was so special, what did we really like, what was the subtleties that I thought was phenomenal, that was so phenomenal that I kept it for 28 years. And then you then can convey that information to the person that you're working with, and you can start to hunt it. And there's going to always be people that want to hunt old stock. See, I love hunting old material, right? And it's just, it's, it's like going back to my youth. 
I'm returning to when I was younger and plants looked different and flowers had different profiles and the effects were different. We've intensified everything because we've throttled up how much per profile and how much cannabinoid levels. So if I can bring back my turret profiles and bring back my cannabinoid levels, I have a much more balanced effect. It's not as intense. Same category, earth, but really earthy or less earthy and really powerful or less powerful. So it, it, the, the variability is within each category. And for you, you're trying to take something that has value. You just need to find some help. Because otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to work with a limited population. And that doesn't mean that it's going to give you the direction you want to go. Make sense? Yes, sir. Okay. I that. Thank you for all the great information. Um, I think if you could expand a little bit about the power of Appalachian, the power of the perception of that. Bordeaux, Burgundy, Loire, Paso Robles, Napa, Sonoma. People know, people have a perception of what they're going to expect. I know Wendy talked about it. Yes. They're always good, sometimes they're not. People in this room don't want to be lumped into the batch with the synthetic growers in our region, in our Appalachian. So can you talk a little bit about what was the critical mass needed of good growers in Humboldt to get together to designate an appellation? You know, you're gonna laugh, but the senator, a senator came to talk to me, Mike McGuire came to talk to me and asked me, um, how did I choose cannabis varietals at the nursery? And I said to him, I said, you want the real answer or do you want the one I'm supposed to give you? And he laughed and he goes, I want the real answer. I said, I look at the whole country and I determine what markets that are desirable in the US for products. And when people come in to speak to me, I ask them discreetly, where do you move your weed to? And if I know what region in America you move your weed to, I know what to put you in. And he started laughing he was like, wow, that's the first honest answer I've ever had in, in this kind of situation. Because everybody's always trying to hide from the real truth. But I, I, I wasn't worried about it. He was there to get information. And he asked me, he said, how do I help you cultivators out? And I said, what we need is we need organic standards and we need Appalachian protection. And I was turned on to Appalachians through, I'm aware of them, but I had a, a, a business partner I worked with, Luke Bruner, who was a brilliant young guy. And he just dove into the Appalachian concept. And so he and I talked about it all the time. Well, when I got an audience with a senator, I said, could you give us Appalachians and organic standards? So this way we have mandatory organic ability. And he said, no, I can't give you that, that's USDA. So the USDA controls that, we don't have the ability to do that because there's no federal control. He goes, but I can most definitely give you an Appalachian. And so I, I initiated it through a conversation and then it blew up around me. And then all these other people came in to really create this entire complex, I would start to get um, a commission that gets together to start asking for input on what is the inputs of it. So in order to have, the question was, could they have indoor in it? And you have to figure out, do you want to discriminate? With French Appalachians, exceptionally discriminatory. So this way what you have is very defined production methodologies even with, with material, you have to work off of historical cultivars. And so the problem is that there really is no historical cultivars in America since none of them are from here. So you can't say that this cannabis variety grew wild in your region and you've been farming it because it just didn't happen. We brought it here. So you have to make some kind of changes in how you write the laws, but we started really being able to shape 
What are the what are the definitions of the appellation? So you have a Humboldt appellation. So that means that you. What is this county called? Whitmore Lake. Washington. Washington County, right? Washington. All right. What if this county's called that? And that becomes your major appellation. And then within it, you have subproduction zones. And so we're going to divide them into probably watersheds because it makes the most sense where we are. Mendocino, with the Appalachian Project from Justin Calvino and I think Gene Coleman, they're breaking it up into how they perceive the region breaks in, in more geographical chunks, but Humboldt's so mountainy that the watersheds really better reflect the reality that this is a common production zone. So these protective mechanisms allow you to be able to have clearly defined connection with each other. And if you are discerning with your appellation, you can discourage poor production because you don't have to get certified and licensed. You may be within Humboldt County, but if you're not following the standards that are set, you're not allowed to use the stamp on your property. You're not allowed to use that value added. You're not allowed to really tie into that combined branding and combined marketing, which is the main point, because most small individuals do not have the ability, like Shango mentioned, how do these guys get $200 eights? Well, man, they light up an internet fire. Now, can he do it over and over and over again? You know, can, can, can some people hit it constantly? The cookie guys have done a wonderful job because they've been able to keep moving through their world and constantly looking for offshoot fringes of what they're touching. And they're able to build enough storefronts and enough distribution so that people can actually get access to the product. So they're a, a very complex, complete system as a company. But you're all developing cultivators in terms of that, that edge. And the appellation allows you to say, our region has a distinctive production advantage, and this is what it imparts. That's why if you run these, what I talked about originally, you're, I'm not saying you have to only work within the four divisions, meaning that you, you must have these four things specifically for each person. But within your region, you can have enough range of material produced under that umbrella that your farm produces best what fits you best. And it goes underneath that regional umbrella. The appellation allows you a stamp that, de that de defines it. And those stamps have value because almost every branded region on earth gets more money for their products. There's no question. Hang on a second, this, this poor guy's gonna break an arm off, man. <laughs> this question probably is asked a lot, but I'm just curious, like, what do you look for in males when you select your males? You know, we're gonna have, I think, a whole breeding panel oh, in a minute. No, it's okay, it's okay. But, no, 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 it's all right. But someone asked me that question earlier. But we're gonna have a breeding panel, and we're gonna get a bunch of people up here to chop it up. But fundamentally, what I want is, what am I using the male for? And am I using it to impart a trait that I desire? Am I trying to merge traits? And so it's always about what's your intent? What do you, what do you desire? And what do you believe the male is gonna to give to the female? And then you have to run it into it, and then you have to test the progeny. If you're not testing the progeny, it's theory. And so you're gonna find out a lot of times that you went the wrong route, and then you have to go back. And that's where with the genomic breeding, where you're going into scientific breeding, you're starting to identify does this plant have these traits in a fashion that's able to be passed on? And the plant doesn't always look like the one that you want to use. I use myself as an example of a good breeder male if you only want 
certain traits to pass through because both my son and my daughter look like their mothers. And so the only thing they have really is my eye color. And so I'm happy about that because both the moms are pretty. And so it allows me to be able to reproduce and not necessarily control too much of the outcome. Sometimes that's what you're seeking. You're looking for a male that's gonna only add a slight bit to the female because it's the female that you really wanna shine. But a lot of times, you wanna take a male to impart a trait or impart a hardiness or change a morphological characteristic or, or, or go after finishing speed. And that's gonna be where you do the run and then you test it out over time. And that's where running full outdoor is hard as a tester because it doesn't let you see what you're seeing. And so a lot of times it's, it's nice to do indoor work because it lets you run these shorter cycles for observation. So I use indoor work for observation and then I stuff it on the farm to run outside to see how does it really do in my environment. It would be, yeah, based off of what I want. Yeah, because it, 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 and especially like if you, if you start to see patterns where you realize that this leaf shape and this, this phyllotaxy produces a different type of flower than that leaf shape and that phyllotaxy, the way the, plant, the branches are arranged. So you're gonna start to see traits and trends, but you're only gonna notice that over time. So what I wanna see is what did it produce and then what you have to remember is you have to make sure you hold all these plants. You have to hold the males and you have to be clear about it and run it. And for preservation, you want to use a variety of males and a variety of females so you're capturing as much material as possible. Yeah, like, you know, six and 12. So 12 females, six males, and you just collect the seed and put it in the container. And then what you're getting is the ability to mine material indefinitely down the road. But if you're trying to work a specific production where I want to be able to have this occur, then the male that I'm seeking is what I want to add to it. If I have a female that I think needs to be opened up more, then I look for a more open up male. If I think I want to compress it, if I think the male has a hardiness, um, in my case, when I was doing a lot of the male work, it was, does it have the ability to throw hot numbers on top of an existing plant? And then you'd go through that population to find the ones that had the traits you wanted in terms of resistance, speed of flowering, shape, rooting ability, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and that's really all you. That's the beauty of it is that you can go any direction you want with what you have. It's just you have to be willing to admit that you didn't go the right way sometimes. If the progeny isn't better than the parental stock, why are you breeding it? You have to be honest, you know. Welcome. So uh, I got a question as far as when you're coming up and like determining your appellation production methodologies, uh, like if there's any consideration into what inputs are being allowed to be brought in, like to say affect or change the terroir or oh, oh, completely. like kelp from the Atlantic being brought to like the West. Like, yeah, you can, you, can, you can write that. See, the yeah. thing is that when the, when the state came in to us, after we said um, we could use an appellation, they initiated the process, they then created a committee, and we, probably like a hundred of us showed up and went through all the questionnaires, and we all really started to write what we believed was correct. Should we source material from out of the area? Can we use clonal stock? Are lights considered part of the natural terroir? Is that normal? Are greenhouses, do they work? 
should indoor be considered? And so all the farmers have a chance to go through this and start to have input because the individuals want to see a system that's going to work best, which was, it was funny, but it was probably one of the better processes I've been involved in in terms of regulatory, was building the appellation. And so they have till 2020 to get it completed, but then we'll have the defined standards of, you know, can you, can you truck water in? Do you have to have water stored? What form of methodology are you using with your production? Does it, does it have to be in native soil? Could it be in a bag? And so we all started to jam it out on, no, it needs to be in the ground. We need to be able to create a situation where we build the earth that's native so that we have differentiation or otherwise you have too much similarity. And, and when I was judging a couple number of years ago, I tasted, it was, it was killer too. It wasn't like a bad experience, but there was this phenomenal, rich, grapey, sugary taste that was coming out of some of these varieties. Except I smoked two or three of them that had that same flavor. And it caught my eye, and I started noting them in a notebook. And when the whole cup was over, I went back to the, the, now that I knew who did what, and I could see their inputs, they were all sourcing from the same compost company in Sonoma that was using grape husk. And so I picked it up really clearly, and I had someone try to tell me, there's no pickup and flavonoids from your inputs. And I'm like, okay. Um, it was so clear that it was distinct, and the problem is that that separates your differentiation. So even though that was an incredible compost mix, if you're using it here and I'm using it in Humboldt County, we're running the same base stuff, our stuff tastes the same to some degree, how does that allow us to separate from being competitors and how does it allow you to really highlight your native material? More brand together. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you want to be able to. So you can write these laws, you have an ability you just have to get people who are competent in Appalachian construction, and you'll find them. There's consultants, Jean Coleman out of Mendocino is killer, and she can help you understand these things in a way that lets you create a system that is workable but not easy, because easy diminishes your brand quality. And you can refine the process over time, too, and make it so that it evolves as you evolve as a, as a cultivation region and community. And pretty soon you start to become powerful. And if you look at Burgundy, and you, my two favorites are Burgundy and Champagne, and primarily because Champagne works off of common uh, four cultivars, common production system, Burgundy works off of location. Each individual strip has a different soil index that imparts flavor profiles to the grapes they choose. And some of these people are selling wine at 1100 bucks a bottle wholesale. I mean, it's mind-bending, you know? So if they're able to pull this off, even though wine is different than cannabis, and I don't mean as a drug, I mean as like an accepted consumption item because for years we had to consume ferments because most water was contaminated. Um, that's not cannabis. You didn't have to smoke it to, to clear up the air you were breathing. So different cultural connections to the people who consume it. But we can utilize some of the concepts and realize how they work with it and how they do it. And I think that some places should work off the Burgundy model. And I think that some places should work off the Champagne model. And I think the Champagne model in general is better for people who have less financial levels because it allows the bigger individuals in the area to be the clearinghouse, to be the production house, but they can only buy from you. So they can't really go sub it out from another county and move it. So you don't lose your value. And that's what happens is that in a lot of these production areas, 
even the, the ones in Humboldt, we can't get product from other counties and run it through and put a Humboldt stamp on it. Yeah. So it, it protects the farmer, which is the point of the appellation. Yeah. I was going to say the uh, Champagne is a great connection too because they have, aside from the big houses like Rotor and whatever, they have a grower's collective. Mm -hmm. And you sell it as you're a member of this collective and you operate as a grower Champagne. And they have, it almost operates as a slightly different appellation for them than it does from the bigger houses that, that control a lot of the market. And, and, and they've developed and evolved those models over time to fit their needs, which is the same situation that you can fit in. And, and a lot of stuff is that people want brands, but a lot of times being a white label isn't bad as long as you get paid. You're not diminished as a human being because you don't have a special hat you're wearing. Except Suzanne's had a tinfoil the other day. I almost cried when I saw that friggin' thing. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny, man. But the, the point being is that like, you're aware of that situation where you can use these smaller operations and it allows them to have different leverage and allows them to combine and form collective models that work for them on different levels. But the bottom line is the ones that feed the bigger houses the same situation. They're still getting paid. They still have value. They're able to pass. I'm in, I'm in a movie. And so it'll come out this summer, but the film is about me trying to take a farm and go from black market world into legal and turn it into a regenerative farm. Like, how do you do this in the new world? And the parallel in the movie is a family that's been farming in, in France that's passed the winery down for 450 years. So every 25 years, they hand it down to the next generation. That's a good dream. And so if the, if the French can see 400 years of movement, then why can't we? You know, why can't you be the beginning of this block in a world that'll change because cannabis ag is no longer outlawed and it's encouraged and it's about to become globally pushed. All of a sudden, these production regions in North America that produce phenomenal cannabis have an ability to compete globally. You know, up in Kootenays in Canada, there's some good grass there and I've been in Europe. I don't know Ontario well, but I know there must be some killer pockets where people have been growing heavy. New England is loaded up with some people. I'm sure Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio. There's spots all over the United States that are sweet spots for production. Every country has these little sweet spots. That's, that's global choices. You're buying Australian wine, it's pretty nice. They figured out they could grow good grape there, they sell it, and if they do it right, it moves. Next thing you know, that'll be a 100-year process, and you'll be looking at houses that are ancient. And I just believe that we're at the beginning of this, of this new world in cannabis. And if you look at Napa, when I first looked at Napa as a, a county, I said, how the hell are these people making so much money with such little canopy? And I realized that it wasn't about that at all. It was about huge tech investment had come in and bought these wineries, the ones that were available, and they used them as status. And because they had companies that made so much money in one direction, they could write off losses on the winery and offset their gains, and it allowed them to own wineries without having to really worry about the money loss. And what it did is it took every single person in Napa and multiplied their value exponentially because of who came in and went at that product. And I don't see it any different with cannabis. I see, and, and I'm someone who doesn't want to sell the farm, but I would love there to be value in case my children unfortunately had to sell the farm. Where the world changes and someone says, you know, I'm gonna give you $30 million for your cannabis label because it's historical 
and we have that ability. And I don't see why that's not possible because that's what happened in Napa. So why would it be any different in cannabis? No difference. Once it becomes mainstream, then it becomes sexy, then it becomes styly, and then now it has value. And that's what you're building here, and that's why the appellations are important because what it does is it gives you a designated zone that's been determined to have value. How, so I had a question asked to me, yeah. um, how do like, so in wine, you have to approve, approve, apply to get an appellation. Mm -hmm. I know that's in my town, they just got one, it's the smallest in the world, yeah. it's kind of cool. We don't have anybody, or like the AKC or anybody that's you know standing above saying this is how you define a cannabis appellation. Is this, how did you guys do it in Humboldt? Is it just get gathering people and yeah, saying, and figuring them, it out? you get them all together. You say this is our stamp and like, how do yeah, you? Yeah, we got them all, everybody got together and you started to, to, to fight it out over what should be allowed. And it's funny because some things are, you know, you know that you, clonal works good and I'm someone who's pushed a lot of clones, but I'm someone that said we, I would rather go native soil from seed lines because what I want to be able to do is bring differentiation back subtly into the farmer's hands so that you have years that are unbelievable and years that are good and years that are average so that this way what you're having is this constant desire for the individual to keep exploring it. People like the same, but they like subtle differences when it's done right. And so for me, I said I would rather have seed and I would rather have in the earth than any other methodology because then what it does, it forces us to rely on that area to be most discerning for us. So we're able to like write this. So I mean, I, you have all these columns and all these choices and options that they're writing for you. You're saying, this is what we should do. And they put up a hundred choices. And then you can sit down and start to go through them and vote on it. And then they can tabulate the votes, which is the state. And they start to say, hey, we see some pictures. And then you get the next conversation where we say, look, the majority of people agree that indoors should be included. And you go, I got you, because the majority of people must be doing some indoor and they need the inclusion. Does it diminish your appellation? No, it's just that what you're gonna see is you're gonna see two different differentiations, one that's an indoor model, one that's an outdoor model. And then over the course of time, I think a lot of these indoor models are gonna get knocked out because of efficiency of production, and you'll see it go into the outdoor, but the appellation can be adjusted and changed as you go forward. That's what I was gonna ask. Yeah, it's it almost huge, but a lot of people may not know, but oh, there's well, a they, lot of different flavors and stuff that's coming out and, of there. And that's why we wanna break it up off of, they, they talked about you know how do we break up Humboldt County, but you know my thing on it was it ought to be off of watershed, where are you receiving the water for your farm? How, how do you get the water? Because Humboldt's so mountainous that the water's not going to go over a ridge and back over a ridge. It's only going to go down a ridge to the river. And so that water course that flows is a pretty consistent climate, except in terms of altitude. But it's pretty similar. Otherwise, you're having to do too much sub-breakups, and it starts to become too complex and too confusing. So you want to have it on a little bigger level, but not so big that you're all caught up in the same web but you need to be under a common appellation, this, this county, and then the sub-production area. So like Wendy was saying, um, there's a space in Napa that just gives her killer wine all the time. But that's in Napa, but it's a specific index. So she's, she's in a valley where there's a specific soil index and air quality, and the grape choice just works. So you're gonna find in your region where the most value. Germany does it off of uh, powdery mildew resistance. 
So Germany does it off of a class one, class two, class three, and it's your resistance to powdery mildew. So do you have PM issues because of your altitude and climate? If you do, then you're, it's worth less. And if you have no chance of it, so to speak, because your climate is most inhospitable to powdery mildew, then that's the most valuable. So they have different valuations, but that's how the Germans did it. So no one decided it for them. The farmers are able to actually work on this. And the state wants to see these things happen because it adds value to the state. It adds value to the tax stamps. It gets people to want to come in and tour your Appalachians. You start to be able to build these regional models that let you now sell your products, differentiated your genetics that only you have in this region with production methodology. You can even patent your production methodologies. You can, you can dial it in and say, our process is this. We grow it this way, we do this, we do that, we do this. Anyone else uses this has to pay us. That was my next question. Like, yeah. so, because I, I love the idea of folks coming to my place and saying, hey, I want to go to Western Washington, coastal wheat. You know, I want to come to this farm and, and check that out. But I don't, I don't see that happening for five plus years for us to, the whole population to kind of hone down and- Humble to, too, same thing. Yeah. So take a minute. So should we, should we look at like, hey, let's brand Michigan as regenerative farmers or you know, Washington, should we break it up into just, just like Eastern Washington, <coughs> Western Washington, you know, like where there's simple divides or how do you think that we should, where we should we start? Ideally, it's, 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 it's as, your, your cluster is as small as possible to create the highest degree of value. And certain places really aren't Appalachians, they're just in Michigan. So not all of Michigan is good growing. Not all of Humboldt's good growing either. Some of it sucks. So it, it doesn't impart any quality that's good. So therefore, if you use that in your Appalachian and you allow that to be considered, then the product will be less quality from that. Part of the problem with Appalachians is that you have to have some level of discernment as to the product that's being released. So there has to be a grading. So you have to be able to have some standard of production. And some of the problems that I see with standard of production right now, they're using THC levels as one of the quantifying factors of value. And so as soon as you start to put that in right now, you're already screwing yourself down the road because you've already taken out mixed chemovars and you've taken out lower level THC plants. So as soon as you start to put potency in the quality equation, you're screwed. And I just don't see where it comes from because look at wine. The cheapest booze you can buy is basically grain alcohol, and everything else that's extremely expensive is 80 proof. So why, why don't we understand that component and not put THC levels in? Start to be able to have the ability to use every varietal that's possible to you because you're gonna find stuff that's 13%, 2% terps that's unbelievable. And as long as it fits the quality of production where we're having, um, refinement of the product. So someone says, ooh, this is really nice product, your graders, then you allow it to enter the system. But the thing with, the, with Appalachians is that it's not a free-for-all for everybody to benefit from, it's difficult, but the people that do the work within it benefit from it. And if you're doing regenerative work, then that's part of it. You can tie that into the Appalachian, where if you want to say cannabis is being produced in our Appalachian, it's done regeneratively that you can, you can write that in, and if enough of you agree to it, it'll be the law. And now you have something that's unbelievably unique because what you're having is, is, is a differentiation on a level that people can't just quickly buy. You have to build that stuff.
So they can't come at you with just new technology. They have to actually have to do the job, and that's hard. Did you win that battle at Humboldt? We're going through it right now. All the, the, all, the, all the information went through. We did all the surveys. We did all the meetings. We wrote up all the pieces. And now they're uh, going through that, and then they're going to give us what that said, what's the agreements of the people. And then we're going to be able to take a look and see how we refine that process. But I know that there's no question we'll have one because that's the whole point. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's interesting because you're actually writing it. You, you just have to be present. You just need to get down to the place where they're doing it and don't let someone else do it for you. And so that's the difference is you, you're all here right now. You're here to get an education. Well, be active in, in everything that involves your regulation too. So none of us want to be around regulatory shit because it's dry. But you better be in the room. And you better be in the room when they start to create these things because otherwise who's going to be your voice? And you need enough voices so that you find enough space so you can all exist or otherwise you'll be too minimalized and you won't be able to enter. And so that they can be transitions. For the first five years we work off a of clonal stock too. For the first three years we let you be in bags. For the, then it goes into only in the ground and it has to be certified. Then it's only from seed and it has to be certified. So this way you have a progression, or otherwise it's this guillotine that drops and everybody's suddenly not allowed to participate until they convert the whole systems. That's a, that's a failure of an appellation. You're making it too restrictive too quickly. And so if one has an ability, which you do, to be able to craft and write and direct your movement, then your methodologies of production are defined and protected and your value is protected and you can start to do what we started this conversation with earlier is Build genetic lines that are unique to your area that you can then utilize in this process and you all start to really produce some incredible cannabis that's on a level of production that lets you satisfy a bigger market. So that instead of having 200 pounds of this premium product, you've got 22,000 pounds. You don't have 222,000 pounds, but you have the amount that's gonna allow you to work with this. And they control this, it's like diamonds that you can't run a diamond business in America because it's a monopoly, but the way they work with it is they measure flow and they go, too many diamonds, we hold back. Not enough diamonds, we release. It's kind of like the Fed with money. And you have an ability to control this in a sense where you sit down and figure out, you can't set prices, that's collusion, but you can agree on canopy. You can agree on how much we're gonna actually produce where is the value in the lines? Which lines are decreasing through our numerics where we start to do data acquisition and say, look, the trend shifted out of that line. We're noticing it's going back to this direction. Those are the plants that you then propagate and build in your region. You have an ability to do this in a conservative form. Farmers have all kinds of resources that we don't because they've had to go through this forever. But cannabis farmers are building it. But your crop is extremely valuable. And globally, it's priceless, really. And we're told it's not, because if I tell you that, then you'll just go home and quit. And then I can buy your property cheap, and I can make the money. So, Appalachian is crucial. So we had a question from the online. Um, it asks, when mixing floral, earth, fruits, and gases, do any of these tend to dominate one over the other? Are there any general rules of thumb, or are there too many variables? It, it would depend on what's dominant in the traits, but gas seems to blast a lot of stuff back. So when you throw gas on something, you'll mute a lot of the other things. Typically, if you have gas and fruit, 
you have a little bit of fruit on top of the gas. I don't see uh, fruit take over gas varietals. Earth you can flavor. Florals are pretty complex in general too, and so when you see florals mixed, they kind of hold too. But it's, then it's gonna go to what plants you're working with and is the trait dominant or recessive and to what degree? So that you're able to determine it by checking the progeny. And so you don't worry about it. You're laid out, just like the, like, like I always pointed that variety you did where you laid all these different varieties and you took some base material, you threw some other material at it and it picked up a smorgasbord of flavor that is all to me within these fruit ranges but man, it's just such an experience to ride through it. Um, did you know what you were gonna make when you did it? No, that wasn't what I was spending it for, honestly. Yeah, but, yeah. It, yeah, but what you got was something was spectacular. Yeah, and you ended up getting a fruit salad that was, that was basically like fermented fruit, like syrup, it was so thick. Thick in the, and unique in that it was thick in the nose, thick in the flavor, same thick. So sometimes they're different in expression, where it smells incredible, tastes like shit, or it smells incredible, tastes like something else. This one was smelled just like it tasted, and then it had enough of a sesqua body to it that it held it deep through the joint. So the satisfaction was there. So even though that wasn't what he was seeking, because that's not his flavor profile, when they dropped it off and showed it to me, I said, holy shit, that's a winner. <laughs> and that's what you're gonna find. Yeah, me too. I'm a joint smoker, so I need it to taste good deeper than the first hit. If I was a bomb smoker or hitting a vape, I'd you know, be a little different. But I'm someone who burns flour in joint form, so I'm always sensitive to that. And that's why like, I get re recommendations on pre-rolls is make sure you're crystal clear what you're growing and does it hold and, and can you do a pre-roll and then let it sit for a couple months and then pull it out of the container and spark it up. Does it taste like sawdust? Don't do that one. Or don't put your name on it. Don't put your brand name on it. You can white label it, but don't put your name on it because there is a market for those lower cost products. It's just that your name is going to get attached to it and they're going to believe that that's what you produce and it's not really true. So it diminishes your value. It's saying like the Appalachian thing. You've got people that are doing stuff that are diminishing the value. It's your job amongst each other to say, no, you can't do this. You're breaking down my value. You've got to protect the value. And they're hard on it, man. In France, that stuff's real. And so what I know is that that's the way they protect it. It's, it's, it's trademark infringement that, that screws most people. And I, I saw an interesting interview with an individual who is a, a announcer. He does uh, boxing. His name's Michael Buffer. And so he has this catchphrase, let's get ready to rumble. Do you know how much that phrase is worth? Half a billion dollars. And the reason why it's worth so much money is anybody who uses it in any concept, he goes after you legally and prevents you from doing it. Because he said, hey, that's mine. I created it. I don't mind you licensing it from me. If you want to put it in a video game, license it. But if you're going to pirate my shit, it's not going to happen. I'm going to sue you. And I'm going to go after you legally and protect it. And people are like, well, that's not cool. Well, when that's your IP and someone just stole it and now you're struggling to exist and they're buying a new Maserati with the money they made, you're kind of a little, little angry. And, and it'll be like that. And so that's why you have to be able to make sure you're protecting the Appalachian, protecting the integrity of the Appalachian. And you're looking out for the people within the Appalachian so that if they're struggling, whoever's the best cultivator, man, go there and talk to them. Whoever's really good at sorting the genetics, don't be afraid to upgrade it. 
because the quality of the appellation is more important than you really in terms of bigger picture branding. And so if everybody in it is doing well, you're doing better. How do you police that? That would have to be, that's a tough one because all of us don't like policing. <laughs> but fundamentally, once we get all into an organization and you're doing side shit that's diminishing me, we just kick you out. I mean, like, do you have to go to their farm and go, well, you got Oh, yeah, there's people that go to the farm and inspect it. Right. Yeah, you hire them in part. Yeah, they're inspected. And you make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and to the best degree they can find. Otherwise, these people are destroying what you're doing and you're all agreeing to behave correctly. So we're all agreeing to not steal out of the cookie jar while we're traveling through this, this journey. And someone's got their arm up to the elbow in it. You boot them out of the goddamn bus because they're not, they're not there for the long-term journey. And it's not personal. It's you, if, they didn't, if they didn't want to do it, then they didn't need to be part of it. But when you, when you make the agreement that you're going to do this, you do the damn thing, or you don't because it'll diminish every one of you, and that's not fair. So they don't have, they don't have to be in the Appalachian. They just don't get the stamp. They can grow product in your county and sell it, but they do not get the stamp. Just because you grow it there, it doesn't mean you're part of the friggin' crew. You have to be licensed under that. The potential is there, and now you have to execute. And that way these people can produce, but they don't get the stamp, they get less money on their bottle. And for us, we need that kind of protection. And we can allow the system to regulate it because I just I have a hard time snitching on you regardless. It's just really not who we are. So for me, I'm like, Christ, man, we need to get, we need to get an inspector who's third party who can do this for us because I don't have the heart to ratch out. Yes. You know what the West Coast is doing is the West Coast is using modern advertising and cool boxes. And I, I just disagree with a lot of it because lip wine sells by label unless it has an appellation. So a, a real cool label will sell a bottle of wine because it gives you a feeling. But an appellation gives you a standard of quality, an accepted one. And I think that what we're doing in California is you have these incredible companies coming in that you put a bag of grass on the table, they wouldn't even know what it looked like until someone came in and showed them. But they're selling a lot of it. But they're using, you know, really good packaging. Packaging is what I see, is some gorgeous packages. Really nice boxes. Incredible colors. Um, shitty pot in incredible boxes. Some of, the, some of the glass jars are like epic, like they're so thick and heavy that you could have contained plutonium inside it and would have escaped. And I'm like, I'm gonna smoke it on the way home. Like, I don't need this much. And what I, what I wanna be able to, to see is that you start to get people to be educated on that the product that, when you bring home steak from, even if it's Wagyu, it doesn't come in, in a bowl. It still comes in wax paper that's wrapped. So somehow that product can make it to you in the same package that regular prime rib does. So why do we have to have this intensified packaging, which all it does is really cut into your margin, and it creates an incredible amount of waste. 
What I'd love to see is these regions start to work with hemp producers to make hemp packaging so you have biodegradability. And then what you have is a, a connection between your cannabis world where hemp and cannabis are the same. The people can have the ability to utilize each other's skill sets and products. And so now you start to have a unified industry and you're not, I, I, the, the amount of waste is unreal in California. It's, it's crazy how much crap you gotta open up and get to the weed. Over time, that'll, that'll change. There's no way they're gonna keep maintaining every one of these standards because they'll be like, all right, at some point, everybody's smoking pot. Like, we don't need to guard. It's like, do you know that for me to move plants in California, right, through my, my distribution license for nursery, that I have to do more manifest than if I was moving machine guns. And I used to, I used to sell guns. Like, I had a gun license like 30 years ago. I got an FFL so I could pick up cheaper weapons, right? And, well, it does, it saves you a lot of money. And so at the time I was in the weapons, so I said, let me go get an FFL so I can get my own weapons. And so I started to take a look at all these other licenses for automatics and stuff, and it wasn't what I wanted to do. I was just in target shooting. But I wanted to be able to buy these nice weapons at a, at a better price. So I'm familiar with, with selling weapons. And I know for a fact that I could get a machine gun license and buy them, sell them, and transport them in California easier than I can plants from a nursery. Less restrictions. So that'll change. There's no way these laws are gonna hold for time. And you're gonna see an ease of it, and you'll see an easing on some of this packaging. But I believe that you need to go into the hemp, you need to go in biodegradable, you need to go in friendly packaging. You're gonna see creative devices that allow you to have child protective but not be so unbelievably difficult that the elderly can't open them. They can't open some of the jars with arthritis. They can't open some of the containers. There has to be a simpler form, and I think that technology will give that, but I think that you, you need to go into biodegradable hemp. So I was curious if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on the sesquas and monos, and like which, like what if sesquas tend to be kind of more like woody, like fruity terpenes, or like kind of the differences and crossovers and uh totally totally um yeah what, what he's saying is do you see things that are more dominant in the different categories of of sesqua to mono and i would say that what you'll notice is you'll notice it more through the cultivars themselves because the the combined when when you start looking at terpenes and you start to say it's a package the minors influence the majors tremendously. And so you'll notice it within a family, like certain ones just seem to have higher levels. They're not all the same, they're not coming out the same. And so you would say that predominantly earthy varietals are way more sesquibound. And then as a, as a general rule, fruit is way more, way more monobound. And so you can kind of go, all right, I got you. If I want to do really loud extracts, I have to throw fruit into it. And if I want to have a terrible response with pre-rolls, I roll them out of fruit. And if I want to have things that don't seem very loud and live as an extract, I go to earth. But if I want to have a pre-roll that satisfies, that's where I go. Gas is a little more variable because you seem to have a little bit more volatility in it. And floral, depending on which spectrum of floral. But I'd say in general, you know, earth's definitely more stable on the burn and fruit's way more volatile on the nose. But remember, in every one of these categories, you're gonna see outliers. And what I noticed doing testing for companies 
was that I've seen complete reversals on terpene. So like in this case, it was humulene and pinene. Well, they're not that similar. Piney and humulene don't smell that much alike, really. One of them is very piney, one of them is very green. And in, the, in this case, we were testing a plant that I knew, and we were using inputs from a company that wanted me to see what was the impact on the plants in terms of growth. And I was looking at the turf profiles, and I could see that the change in them was this reversal of piney to humulene. And it was a full 1%, so 1%, 0%, 0%, 1%. Which is a mono and one of them a in, in that case, no, they, but it was that they were so different, but we couldn't tell the difference in the smoke. So we couldn't tell the difference between the samples, but the lab numbers said there was a difference. And so it starts to really let you see this bigger picture of how do we perceive the bigger picture? And sometimes subtle inputs change things, but it doesn't change it in the way that you notice as a person. And so that's a lot of it is where the lab does all the work that it does, but ultimately you've got to get somebody who's honest about it. And I always tell people, man, whoever sells the most grass knows what people like the most because they're able to satisfy the individuals and they know what to put in their hands. And so you ask that person, does this stuff look like it would move? And then you get three people in the room that aren't in the game, and you have them smoke it, and you say, how do you like it? Would you buy it twice? It was a good experience? And you try to standardize the experience. I mean, for me, I standardize an experience by smoking in the morning so that I'm in the same situation for about an hour. And it lets me, it lets me smoke, and then I go, okay, with nothing in my system, same exact room. It used to be my car. I used to hop in my car, and, and on the way through the Redwoods, I had fucking 12 minutes that I could burn a joint. And I hit the highway, and I had exactly like 60 minutes to get to work, where I used to run another facility. And I would drive to the facility, and I had 60 minutes in the car. So it let me have the exact same environment every morning, five days a week, for probably five years. So it gave me this incredible testing laboratory of I smoke, and then I chill. <laughs> and if I, if I suddenly came alive when I got to the destination, I said, oh, that was some profound cannabis. Where you're like, wow, I didn't even have the drive. <laughs> and, and, and then there was other times where you were just like, this drive is long, and, and you realize, I got you, that's not the right experience. Well, I've noticed that you said, like, you know, sesquiterpenes tend to, like, hold through in joints longer. Like, if I'm going for a joint smoking, you know, I'm going to try and aim for a sesquiterpene dominant thing. But... If you, what if you want a gas that's good in a joint, a fruit that's good in a joint, earth that's good in a joint? You look for the outliers within them. Yeah. And, that's, and that, that's, that's only through the mouth. And that's where, that's where the grower is not extinct in the game. And that's what people did. These guys are doing everything. But I'm like, yeah, but they're throwing anything on the table. As soon as you put better choices on the table at a price range that works, well, you're competitive. And, and all these companies are hiring people. I get hit up all the time. We want to hire you for some consultation and to access your genetic material. I'm like, oh, how original is this? <laughs> and that's really where your skill comes in, is that you're able to take a look through this, this collection and say, hey, this is the one that I really liked. And you're going to sort stuff just like you know, what Josh was saying. I was looking for fuel and earth, and I ended up getting a fruit salad that was mind-bending. That's the outlier. But you know what? You weren't looking for it, but you got it. And be grateful you got it because it was really, really attractive to the groups that want that rich, soupy, thick flavor that held in a joint. So it's a, a high fruit varietal 
with the ability to hold its flavor, which is rare. Yeah. You know, that's the perp. That's why the perp is so hot. Because the perp was a fruit that had an ability to hold a flavor all the way through the joint. And that was the era of blunts. And so it, it instantly made a blunt taste decent all the way to the back end. Revolutionized blunts and herb. It's, um, let me think, it was a, I think it was a, a cherry pie to a face-off OG, and then they went into a grape bait, and then he threw a royal kush on top of it. And, and I'm talking about it a lot because it was just really, I see a lot of grass, but that was really interesting because it had such a really sexy profile. Like in the nose, it was attractive. I always tell people the same joke about, I put herb in a jar, and I let you smell it. And while I'm talking to you, I move the jar around, and I watch you move with the jar. <laughs> and pretty soon you realize that I'm screwing with you, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because you were so caught up in it, you didn't get angry. It's kind of like when, when you, it's like with money. If you hold money out, someone grabs hold of the money, and you hold on to it. The degree that they try to pull it out of your hand is the degree they want it. And, that kind of lets you know how much they want that money. So it's the same game of like, I'm showing it to you, are you telling me you really like it? Or can I move you around the room like I'm a snake charmer? And if I can, then I know it works. And so I take, I took that, the, he said, gave me a nice big butt of it. And I said, oh, this is, this is nasty. I said, and my friends were laughing and they were like, oh, here it comes. And so now we started finding people to smell it. And they would smell it and they would go back. And like eyes would open up big because they got this huge glass. Then they went right back to the jar. And when they went to the jar, I would move it away and they would chase it. <laughs> so it was just really, really a beautiful sifted. And, I, and, I, I, and, I, and it's killer because, like I said, I see a lot of killer cannabis. But, you know, Josh put on a really good one. It means he's got a good, good, good taste. Many of you, same, same thing. You're all career guys. You're going to find stuff that's incredible and just trust yourself. Nobody, there's no omnipotent person. Regular people that, that are little nobodies in the world of cannabis come up with some of the best stuff ever created. Just remember that, you know? That's, that's a beauty. It's a beauty. What we do is that we're always constantly humbled. I used to because it used to let me explode them up, but I didn't have lab access. I mean, once I got a hold of lab access, I started telling people, don't do it because I used to like using the GA3 because it would at least let me get an extension on it. But the problem is I extend it up. If I can't get the sugar into it quick, I have a collapse. So it worked well for its time, just like scarification, vernalization, um, uh, sprouted CT soaks, um, hydrogen peroxide to get higher oxygen levels in. I mean, all these different methodologies. But the thing is I've lost too many plants playing with it. And I, if I have enough stock, I can mess around. But now that I know the laboratories are here, we're in the future now. We're not talking about flying cars, we're gonna go get in one. So it, once you're getting in the flying car, now we can talk about flying cars. Well, now we're talking about laboratory services that are real, that work, that allow you the ability to crack this old material because to me it is priceless. It is the only way you're gonna get around a lot of the patenting problems that are coming is because it predates it all and there's profiles and unique tones to it that they just don't have in their hands today. That allows you the differentiation you need. You got a piece of your hand, I was like, this guy back here with the mic for a minute. 
Yeah, I got the mic. I just don't want to jump in there. No, no, it's right. You just jump in. Well, you got to cut me off. It's all right. I do have a quick question. Uh, That'll be a five-hour answer, and we can revisit the panel. But the gentleman with the pink panther seeds suggested uh, selfing them, and that would normally start an internet shitstorm in a forum. So uh, if you didn't jump up and say no, is that a viable option is my yes or no five-hour answer question? If you have four seeds or something that's 28 years old, you do what you damn well need to preserve them. Otherwise, you're like, my ethics are so great, I'd rather see it die. Sure. And that was kind of my question. You were saying a bunch of strings have kind of passed through you and uh, you've let them die. And it's like, at no. what point do we try to bank these things for you, the sake of banking? Well, it, the banking's tough because I, I use the example of the, the seed facility in the Antarctic, where they built the most scientific seed facility ever created, and it flooded. And I got a picture at my house of scientists in panic running out of the building with cardboard bear boxes, you know, like bear flats, filled with the, with the most valuable seed stock on planet Earth. So I kind of lose faith in, in banking services from a single entity. What I recommend is that you bank them in, in some form collectively. And banking seed is pretty simple in terms of get it to a level of dryness where it's uh, no moisture, throw a desiccant pack into it, vacuum pack those seeds into batch lots so that you're not bagging them all in one shot. And you're having strips and then every so many years you recrack a pack and you do another, you do another pollination to preserve. If you're really trying to do this, you have no other choice. And man, I meet guys that are that are uh, seed collectors from corn and all these other agricultural forms. And I mean, it's humbling because I'm a I'm a monoculturalist, where uh, I'm only cannabis. That's basically I spent all my time in one plant. But I got buddies that are into all kinds of plants and they're preserving stock all the time and they're sharing and giving and moving and working and I'm like, whoa, it's been done forever. We just gotta copy that same method. But you have four of anything that's priceless. You do whatever you damn well need to and then you can work all the epigenetic bullshit out down sure. the road. But get to live and get it back into organic biology and methodology and natural sunlight and let it start to normalize over the generations. But to lose the material means you lost something that might never be. That region that it came from could very well be only poppy now. So yeah, you look know, at the pepper situation in Syria. They have a whole variety of heirloom peppers that are essentially gone after the ISIS uh, rolled through and demolished everything. And, and it's, it's only going to get worse. You're only going to see less and less and less. And the, the problem is that you need to be the preservationist. I learned this from a guy that does coral preservation, where he does, uh, he's a coral freak and he's a frag collector. And he said, more coral in diversity is held now across the world in small hands and might be left in the ocean because we've acidified it so badly. So all of a sudden, all these small collectors are holding coral alive in little tanks in their houses, preserving something that was once widespread. And I think that has to happen with cannabis because you need to have this source material so that you can always mine back and go into the things that have resistance that was chosen for centuries to resist problems in areas so that you have the genetic information needed to survive. You can always pull good grass out of a population, but can you pull good grass out that survives? That's really the issue for farming to me. And so, that's where we are with cannabis. Thank you for that. And uh, my, my observation was actually a little more towards what the last person just asked or uh, the lady up there asked. Um, so the bourbon model seems a little informative as well as the champagne wagyu uh, models because with bourbon, they're very specific about their watershed like you were alluding to, but more specifically, the value added or hyper luxury products. So like the Instagram hype pathology is terrible, 
But when you look at where the bourbon market is matured, you can go to distilleries, for instance, Jim Beam, and there are $1,200, $2,000 bottles of bourbon that are 23 years old where you can't get anywhere else, and they only sell them at the distillery and to a two or three select bars in Japan where the ultra-premium market is. And they don't blink. They buy cases of them. Oh, look, look but, So does that look like a single plant packs for us, like the best plant in the greenhouse, because those are specific spots in the rickhouse, or you, is you it would, you, you have sort of graded packs, you know, what, what's the what's the high dollar we can go after like that that's only a farm? In, in, in terms of how you would look at Appalachians in general, there's always going to be ultra high level producers within them. So there's going to be somebody more successful than other people, and not everyone in the Appalachians is going to sell a $3,000 bottle, but you might. But the bottom line is if the $3,000 bottle's coming out of your Appalachian, it drags the value up of everybody around you. And not everybody has the same skill set or the same location. But the bottom line is some of you will, and who knows who that will be. But well, maybe that's just a way to bring in what you're talking about, kind of the collective as well. The best plant from your greenhouse was the bomb, and it was way better than the rest of my production run. So we'll make packs with that, and your best plant, which is the same varietal, same terroir, and you and sell it. Four grand packs, something like that. Or, or on bid. See, I think, I think you'll see on bid as you go forward for some of these items, if you like with wine, they auction it off in terms of what's it really worth for the market? What does the market, what does the market bear? And then I think that you're going to see, especially with extraction from uh, dry sift and from water process, it'll be the way you're able to capitalize on, on vintage. And so vintage in wine means no rain that year. So perfect year for grape, sugars were high, no, no issues. So we'll have said in the last 10 years, four years ago was a vintage year. Well, any flower kept is garbage by now because the, the plant material is degraded. But if you captured the resin from it and preserved it correctly, that's worth something. And that has the ability for you to be able to work off of these scarcity, rarity items where that was the best year we all talked about. That was the best strain. Well, I have hash from the best strain from the best year. What is that worth? And those are small niche items, but the bottom line is it allows you to make money from years later on small batches that you hold because holding hash isn't difficult. You can hold it in quantity until you package it. And so you could hold it in form, and as long as you have the paperwork on it and release it in the future, why can't you work off of that? Ferrari, like Ferrari does, they, they always get orders on their cars. They make a few less than they get orders, so this way you're always getting screwed. And then on some of the Ferraris, you have to own a Ferrari, and then you have to go to the Ferrari track and drive their Ferrari, and they have to determine that you can drive the car before you're allowed to buy it. And then when you buy it, you can sell it the next day for another million dollars. So you paid 1.1, you buy the car, and the next day it's worth 2.2. Because they don't allow you to buy it. They're not, they don't let you get at it that easy. And that's not us right now because otherwise we'll just discourage sales. But when you go global and you start to have the ability to produce incredible varieties of cannabis in these regions that produce incredible varieties, then as a commoditized product, which cannabis will be, why wouldn't it follow suit that these things have the value? And your farm might be the one that produces it the best and so you're the one that they use to enter the competitions. You're the one that they use to highlight some of these pieces because every single person around you looks better when you do better. That's the beauty of the Appalachian, that if you're all contributing to it and you're all participating at the right level, the success of one multiplies the success of all and it doesn't diminish your success, which is what most people are afraid of. I don't want to tie in with anybody because they're going to screw my money up. Uh, 
I'm not going to get my recognition. But the truth of it all is you're too small to be recognized. But together, you're not. You definitely got the wheels turning. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, keep going. All right. You can go for as long as you want. Well, I mean, we're at 1230. Oh, shit. Yeah, we'll take Let's it. Let's go get some lunch. <laughs>